I said, Robert looks like he's in a good mood this morning. And that's not always the case when we start recording the podcast. Are the rumors true, Rojo? Are you in a good mood or are you just putting on a facade? So you're judging me based on my appearance and I have a smile on my face? Yes, I'm in a great mood. Fantastic mood. As I was preparing for the podcast last night, I, I realized I'm so pop, so pumped. This is going to be the greatest podcast of my life. So many great hot takes to get out there, to share with the fans. And I've got a new strategy. There's been no strategy. In past podcasts, it's just been my pure brilliance. Today, my notes are no longer shared with you. I've put my notes on a separate document, printed them out so you guys don't know what arguments I'm going to come up with and stuff like this. And this, therefore, I think that the brilliant, my brilliance will be revealed. Sounds like a great plan for a podcast. Start talking about topics and don't let your co-host prepare so we just catch a court totally unawares. The only problem with that, Robert, is that you're not the only one with access to that Google Doc. And last night, I was doing my job and preparing for this podcast, and I saw some of those notes, and then I saw they disappeared. And I was like, what is Robert doing? He spent all this time preparing this stuff. I thought there were some pretty interesting points in there. And then this morning I log on and they're gone. So I'm going to do my best to remember what was brought up and maybe that'll help me in this discussion. But to me, I just feel like you're trying, is he, are you just trying to embarrass us, Robert? Is that the plan here? I, I don't know. I just thought these were brilliant points. Why would I want to share them with the staff? I mean, I guess I might need you, John, to remind me that like I was going to bring up this topic. Sometimes I get, I forget some of the, some of the topics we want to do, but. Well, this is great. We're definitely going with this. I said, uh, I was just going to record, and you guys are going down the path, so this is good. Today's podcast, I don't know what else we're talking about because I didn't see these notes, so someone better get on this quick after I play this Ken Go piece. But we talked to legendary track and field writer Ken Go, who was a track and field writer for, well, he was a writer for 43 years at the Oregonian. That is in Portland, Oregon. This was the guy who would talk to Alberto Salazar, who knows what's going on at Nike, had access to Vinland Anna. And he had some interesting things to say, and he's including some of you guys saying he's an Alberto Salazar apologist. Here's a little clip from Ken on that. So I reject the criticism that I'm soft on Nike. I, I don't. I think you'd have a hard time uh, finding uh, anything that I've written that would uh, indicate that I was. Um, the question of Alberto, I think, gets down to. Uh, um, how you evaluate the evidence and to me i've seen very little persuasive evidence that he was a systematic cheater now maybe you can um say well it depends on uh how you define cheating and, and that might be a fair point and ken has a lot more to say i mean he's he's not he's got some criticism on Alberto, especially on the mary kane thing but I, john i thought it was a fascinating talk yeah, definitely a lot of good stuff with Ken, and he gets into the Galen Alberto relationship, talks about some things that I don't think either of us knew about, so definitely stay tuned uh, for the end of the podcast for that interview. And if you wanted early access to that interview, Letron.com Supporters Club members have been listening to the full thing for a few days, and sometimes we hold back parts of interviews, but I think we'll let you guys listen to the full hour talk with Ken, because he knows so much about... Nike, Alberto, Galen, Vin. I mean, stuff just I hadn't even thought about. Sort of that Galen was stepping outside of Alberto's shell before the doping ban came down. So a lot of interesting stuff there. But if you want to become a supporting club member, supporters club member, go to letsrun.com slash subscribe and join today's support letsrun.com site. If you join for the year, you will get a free letsrun.com 
shirt or a free 159.40 shirt. Join today. Let'srun.com slash subscribe. Speaking of shirts, people, we're basically entirely sold out of the 159.40 shirts. But I have an announcement. This Friday, one week before Black Friday, we're going to have a special Black Friday pre-sale on Let's Run. 20th anniversary shirt will be coming out for one day only at a special price. That's all I can say right now. Well, if this is the shirt I think Robert's talking about, I think it looks great. Uh, you, so you guys mark your calendars. Make sure you grab one of those. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look good. You'll stand out in a crowd. It's, uh, it's a great idea. But on this week's podcast, before Ken Go interview, I'm going to talk about lots of stuff. Talk about how Nike has caused the Japanese to lose their honor and integrity. Going to talk about my plan to pick the Kenyan and Ethiopian Olympic marathon teams. Got an idea of how NCAA cross country should be run. All of that and much more. And we got some big stories as well. Olympic steeplechase champion Conceslas Kipruto has been charged with defilement, essentially statutory rape in Kenya. He could go to prison for 20 years. John will give us insight on the NCAA cross country and track meets being indoor track meets supposedly going to be held the same weekend this winter. Doping internationally has been made illegal by the U.S. Senate. And we got a little high school unofficial nationals talk, a little NCAA Division II national talk. James Lee, Bernard Lagat's long-term coach, is out at Arizona, has retired. What else am I missing, John? Well, and we've also got Elijah Manningoy has admitted responsibility he has owned up and accepted his two-year ban for whereabouts failures so we will talk about that and i just want to take a moment to pause and reflect on what might have been i know sometimes we do this we look at the calendar and say in a normal year this event would have been happening and this week is near and dear to my heart ncaa cross country was supposed to be saturday tomorrow morning i should have been on a plane to oklahoma going to check out stillwater and it would have been an exciting weekend. It's always one of my favorite meets of the year. It's actually the forecast I was looking today. The fo- the high in Stillwater on Saturday is supposed to be 66 degrees, which if that sounds high for NCAA cross, it is. The record high NCAA cross, according to Track and Field News, is 65 degrees in Tucson in 1991. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we will have an NCAA championships in March. I... We will get to it later in the podcast, but where do you, want, you guys want to start now? It seemed like you wanted to talk about Manningoy, Weldon. Yeah, I think we start with Manningoy. I mean, this is the former world 1,500-meter champion. He, like a bunch of other people, was getting charged with three missed doping tests. He put up his excuses, which I don't even know them all. I know one said he was stuck in traffic, whatever. And the... World Athletics Anti-Doping Committee, or whatever they're called, said, nope, sorry. Athletics Integrity a- Unit. Thank you. Athletics Integrity Unit. I should know them because they're – we're sometimes critical of them, but they're doing uh, great work all in all, I think. I, I, I think they have good intentions. Um, anyway, but they said, nope, this these excuses are good. You're banned for two years. And instead of saying, F you, whatever, Manangoy said – I mean, I guess we could re- even read the statement, but he just accepted responsibility and said, uh, yeah, I made a mistake. 
I have received the verdict from the AIU, and as I sit here, I've acknowledged that I made a mistake on my whereabouts failures, and I've accepted their decisions. Though it will be difficult to forgive myself, I'm sorry for disappointing my country, Athletics Kenya, my management, my coach, and all whom I have betrayed their trust. I would like to urge my fellow athletes born in Kenya and abroad to seriously take care of their own whereabouts to avoid unnecessary sanctions. It seems simple, but a slight mistake can be costly at the end. It's shameful. I'm a clean athlete. I'll be back and win right. I mean, it doesn't get better than this. I would give him. A, I would reduce his suspension. Like, and I guess he put up, still put up excuses trying not to get banned. But like, this is what we want. I, I think if you're doping, you're not gonna. I mean, who knows? But I don't think a doper is gonna intentionally miss their third test. Most likely. Who knows? I mean, uh, this whereabouts things. A doper would no, they would well then because missing a third test is two years. Getting popped for a positive test is four. I'm not going to make look. I don't know whether Elijah Manningo is clean or not, but if he is, if he is clean, I mean, this is what I would want to see. I would want to see someone taking responsibility, and that's not something Christian Coleman's done. And I think the, the you can't totally compare the two. Although I did compare the two in my article, but. The thing about Coleman, someone pointed out, well, Coleman, he's fighting the case. And if, you fi- if you're fighting the case, if you're trying to get a re- your reduction in your suspension or the, you know, it overturned completely, you're not going to come out and just say, oh, this was totally all my fault because then they'll just say, they'll ban you. So I do get that he's trying to fight it. But from all I've, I've seen, it is Coleman's fault. And really, you know, he, the AIU kind of ruled, they listened to his appeal. They said, no. You were responsible, and I think he was responsible. So at some point, I, I would like to see him say the same thing Manningoy has said and just, you know, yeah, I went shopping. I didn't take it seriously enough. It's my bad. I'm banned. I don't know if we'll reach that point, but that's sort of my take on it. Yeah, there are different stages of their things. You know, I mean, Manningoy, someone's like, oh, he fought it. No, not really. I mean, you give your excuses for missing the three tests, and if they find them convincing, they can reduce it down to one year or let you off the hook. But... When they said, no, these aren't good enough, he owned up to it. Whereas Christian Coleman sort of preemptively has been saying they're out to get me. Then it comes out that he's been lying about where he was. So the contrast does seem to be significant. I enjoyed your piece. But Manigault has gone for two years. The question I have is we have this story also coming from Kenya. We have an Olympic, another, well, not another Olympic champion. An Olympic champion, Conceslas Caprudo, has been arrested for statutory rape. He could face 20 years in prison. We talked about this in the last week's podcast. Do you guys think he will serve a day in jail? My answer, no, I do not. My prediction is no, because I think around the world, I mean, it's pretty rare to see a major sports star locked up. And, you know, he's he's an Olympic champion. He's a pretty big star in Kenya. I'm, I don't know all the specifics of the case. I know that He's been charged with this defilement. I'm going to be interested to see how it plays out, but my, my bet would also be no, Robert. Are you guys experts on Kenyan law or something? I, I don't know. This is a sensitive, obviously very sensitive subject and serious subject. And now that he's been charged, I don't know. I feel maybe I shouldn't be this way, a little leery of saying stuff. I mean, there was a threat on Let's Run beforehand saying, oh, people don't get charged for this sexes you differently in Kenya. A lot of young girls are having kids, but clearly it's against the law. He can go to jail for 20 years. Like, let's not forget well, well, this girl was 15 and he's 25. Is it, are those the ages? Yeah. Uh, I mean, social norms and whatnot may be different in Kenya, but the law is the law. So 
do you guys have insight? I mean, I my implication before he was charged was he wouldn't be charged that some money might change hands and this would go away, which doesn't make it right. But clearly that's not the case. He was charged, so he could be gone. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't have brought it up. I mean, if this was America, I think the reaction would be different than Kenya. Maybe that's not fair, but I just was gut, gut instinct. I mean, I, I just thought that I would say that I don't think he'll go to jail. I don't think it'll be treated quite the same way that it would be. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I actually, if I had to bet, will he be competing at the Olympics? I would somehow just say yes. I and having no more insight on this than anything else. Alrighty, that's today's podcast, everybody. Um, turning to more positive news. Well, actually, I mean, let's okay, let's pivot here. We can't really do it. It's hard to do a delicate, uh, an elegant segue from talking about an Olympic champion charged with statutory rape to talking about the actual Olympics. But Robert did promise us he has this grand plan to select the Kenyan and Ethiopian Olympic marathon teams, and I didn't see this in the secret notes that he has since printed out. I didn't even know people. St- I, I haven't printed things something out in probably like. Since college, maybe. It's kind of crazy how I don't use a printer anymore. But anyway, Robert, enlighten us. Well, last week at some point, I guess when the Delhi Half Marathon fields came out, I was so excited to see Galen Rupp in the field taking on the world's best, traveling across the globe to break the American record. Oh, wait, that's not happening. The Delhi Half is happening, but yet again, no Americans are going. I guess we did get an American in the field last year, but... No, I was just kind of thinking, like, why doesn't Rupp ever go to races like this? I mean, I know it's a pandemic. I know it's kind of warm. Anyways, I then started having a fear that, oh, my God, how are they going to pick? For some reason, thinking about this international half marathon, I thought, how are they going to pick the Olympic marathon teams for Kenya and Ethiopia? There's no marathons to choose from. And, you know, could Kipchoge be kept off just because he didn't run well in London? And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, think about administrators picking the team in the U.S. You think that idea is scary? Think about them doing it in Kenya. It's even worse. So I don't know. I was like, I, I don't know what they're going to do. I imagine that they, they butcher it. And it made me fearful that like, I don't know why I say fearful. If Rob wins Olympic gold, I want him running an amazing race and beating the world's best. I don't want him winning some watered down field because Kenya and Ethiopia butchered the team. So this is how I would pick the Kenya and Ethiopian team. It's very, very simple. John Kelgan and I got together and we said, what do you want to do? It's what I say about USATF, I say it's about Athletics Kenya, just get out of the way and let the results speak for themselves. So the best way to do it is to have a trials race, 30,000 meters, as close to the date as possible. I'd say up to about four weeks out. Four to five weeks out, you pick the rate, you have the race, and then you pick the top three finishers and they go to the Olympics. Pretty simple. No controversy. The only problem is where do you hold this race? It's going to cost some money to hold it, obviously. They probably don't want to do it at altitude. I can see some complaints there, but they should hold a trials race of 30,000-kilometer 30, 30, distance. 30,000 kilometers? So they're going to be running around like the circumference of the Earth or what? 30,000 meters. And before my major marathons, I often used to I used to run like a, a 30K, basically. Um, the Hansons program they run a 26.2 kilometer race so this is good training for the marathon as well there you go my plan to pick the kenyan and ethiopian olympic marathon teams weldon and i have the same thought right now i'm pretty sure why would you have a 30k trials race like you can just run a marathon trials race robert look at the spring marathon schedule why not just make this 
a marathon and hold it in like March and get them all together. It would be the best marathon of the year. Obviously, someone would have to front this. Maybe we can get some sort of eccentric billionaire to do it. But it would be probably deeper and more competitive than the Olympic marathon. And the winners would have a huge incentive to go. You get on the Olympic team. Why can't we just do that? A marathon is going to wipe them out for one one money making opportunity for the season. And what do you mean one money making opportunity? Find me the money making opportunities on the schedule. All of the spring marathons are canceled, Robert. Just a thirty k, you can do that as part of your training, and then they can go on. If they don't make the team, they can run a, another marathon in the fall if they find one, etc. Obviously, a, b- a better solution would be to have a, just a marathon trials race. Actually, but that that would be not the best way to make sure that Galen Rupp doesn't win the Olympic gold medal. The ma- best way to make sure that the ver- that an American doesn't win the gold medal is to hold the John. The best way, honestly, would be to hold this thirty k race a marathon four months earlier. You don't know if they're in shape. You don't know if. You know, you got to start another training cycle. You have no idea if they're in shape four months later. So the best way to figure out if they're in shape is to hold something about four weeks before, and then you know you've got someone super, super fit at the Olympics. So if they want to maximize their medals, this is This is just not a good idea. Frank Shorter, isn't he the guy who said the marathon starts at halfway 20 miles? A lot of Kenyan guys, I think, could keep up with Eli Kipchoge maybe for 30K. I just What's going to distinguish them? Like... Part of the marathon, and I think this is becoming less and less so with the super shoes, is like what happens the last 10K, the last 5K. And, I mean, Kenya's got so much depth. What if like 20 guys are there and they're kicking at 30K and that's how you pick your Olympic team? Yes. Well, it's, it, so what's your plan? How would you pick the team? You, you would go on the 2000, uh, 2019 fall results? I mean, give me a break. I guess it has been a while. Good point. You got to make sure they're in shape. Huh. Well, I I just love that. Well, Robert's whole motivation for holding this Kenyan trials race is to make to give Galen Rupp the smallest chances possible of winning Olympic gold. This is why he wants a Kenyan and Ethiopian marathon trials. Not really. I, I'm starting to like Galen a little bit more, but I did think like, oh my god, could he like? I, I still think like, how did this guy win two Olympic medals? It still blows my mind. You know, because I was thinking about this Delhi half. I'm like, if he showed up in this race, I'm like, why doesn't Rob go to this race? And then I'm like, well, wait, A, he wouldn't win it. And B, he wouldn't break the American record and, and the conditions. So I'm like, yeah, there's some a bunch of Kenyans, and mainly Ethiopians actually in Delhi that we've never heard of that are winning this thing consistently. How are they? It's, it's, it's amazing what Rupp has accomplished. And then I thought, oh, my God, could he somehow – the marathons are, are – I just don't I, – I can see a, a terrible field picked for Kenya and Ethiopia. Well, I would like to point out, so Kenya, before the pandemic, but all the way back in January, we actually criticized them for doing this. They named their Olympic marathon team, and we thought this was silly because it was before the spring marathons. But here are the names on it. On the men's side, Elliot Kipchoge, obviously, Lawrence Chirono, who won Boston and Chicago last year, and then Amos Kiprudo, who was bronze at Worlds last year. On the women's side, Bridget Cosguy, Vivian Chariot, and Ruth Chepengedich, who won Worlds last year, she was third at London this fall. Now, honestly, like that team right there, okay, we don't know what their exact fitness is, like, you know, in spring of 2020 or August 2020 when the Olympic marathons will be felt, held, but you could do a lot worse than the team they've already named. Like, Kipchoge's a no brainer, Cosguy's a no brainer, Lawrence Toronto was fantastic last year. You can't guarantee he'll be in the same shape two years later, but he's really fit. And Chepin Gedich was also really, really good. I mean, 
I don't know, maybe you can quibble about the, the third picks, but to me, if they sent that team, I don't think that's a huge mistake. But again, we criticized them because they were picking a team like seven months out. You're going to stick with a team now and do it from 19 months out based on their past performances. The best way to do it, since there's no... All of us agreed that the best way to do it is to look at the most recent race results. Since there are no recent race results, you need to have a time trial. You don't want to do a full marathon, so you do 30K. Well, I, I, I agree that your solution is better than you know just going off of results from 2019, but... I still don't. I still haven't heard a compelling argument from you about why we can't have a spring marathon trials. Like the U.S. Olympic trials marathon is awesome. Everyone loves it. Does it pick the exact best team? Well, I don't know. Like, there's no guarantee a 30k race would also pick the best team for the reasons Weldon explained. So, I think a spring, if some European race like London or something like that can put together some Kenyan or Ethiopian Olympic trials in this, I think it would be the race of the spring. And it would be really exciting. And, you know, I, I really don't see a good argument against it unless the funding, which obviously that is a huge part of it. So it's Robert, are you going to start the call also to rerun the U.S. Olympic marathon trials because they were too far ago? I think we got an email on that. Someone has emailed us saying, come on, we need to rerun the trials. I'm pretty sure that's going to be sacrosanct, sacrosanct and not done. But it's interesting because we're going to be what? A year out, the Kenyans are going to be a year and a half out from the last significant race, I guess, apart from London this past year. Unless, Robert, do we have an update on the Let's Run.com marathon? Like this big marathon you talked about last week, or is that secretly being done as well? Oh, we do have an update, actually. Perfect timing on, on that front. Got several emails I might want to read this week. This could be email number one of the week. I didn't explain at the beginning of the show why I was in such a good mood. And and part of the reason is I thought my child was going to be sick today and I was going to be taking care of him and not able to do the podcast. He's well. That's good. But also, I mean, the praise I've been getting in in recent weeks and days, people that listened to last week's podcast and are coming straight into this podcast, if you listen to the very end, you heard some amazing praise from the famed author, Mr. Hart of the Nike book. So famous that Robert can't even remember his first name. Is it Matt or Matt? Matt Hart, right? In case y'all don't know what I'm talking about, here we go. Thank you for your time today, Matt, for coming on. Uh, I think this was great. I had a lot of fun talking to you. And, uh, you know, a lot of other stuff that we didn't get into, but the readers can discover that for themselves, I think. Yeah, thanks, guys, for the interest and the time. I appreciate it. I love the podcast. It's been fun listening to it. I learn a lot from it every week. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad you can stomach it, including with uh, even with Rojo's rants on there. We try to do our best. <laughs> Those are the best. <laughs> That's why we tune in. Uh, there we go, folks. That's why you tune in. So thank you. I know this is why you're listening to me go unhitched. But apparently, Mr. Hart's not the only guy that th- thinks that. Last week on the podcast, they asked, anyone, anyone know how to put on a marathon? We need to hold a major marathon in the spring, mass participation so we can make a lot of money. And I received an email from a Ivy League graduate, Princeton alum, Olympic trials qualifier. I guess, I assume he doesn't mind having his name shared. Tom Dialanis. John, am I saying that correctly? That sounds, I'm not 100% certain on the pronunciation, but that sounds right. So he, he's, he's offered to, well, to help me put on this race, but he admits that he's like a financial analyst in California and doesn't know anything about putting on races. So we do have one man willing to help. Anyone with like, actually running expertise, please email me at robert at letsrun.com. But the email was amazing. He said, 
I just discovered the Lecture on Podcast even more recently. For whatever it's worth, I don't always agree with opinions and arguments on the podcast. But in terms of who makes, in my opinion, the best arguments is, number one, you, Robert. Number two, Weldon. And number three, John. All right, full disclosure, this guy ran at Princeton. We were, I don't know if we would call him rivals because uh, I don't know how many times I actually raced him, but clearly some Princeton Dartmouth bias going on in that email. And you're a Princeton alum. I mean, this is it's frivolous. Let, uh, I used to hate Princeton. Furthermore, I agree with almost all of your commentary on running, particularly the weather obsession, and can see that you would make a fantastic coach. Thank you. Anyone who says that you guys are cooks is nuts. I enjoy the banter, and it's clear you have all of your hearts in the right places. But John, this guy's a friend of yours, it says. He says, I had the pleasure of going to John to run an accident in 2013. That's true. He was an alternate, and I was the alternate's alternate. So, John, this guy that made the trials was the alternate behind you. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. But the, the email was amazing also in another way. It's official, folks. Everyone in running thinks they're not talented. He's like, I, I have no talent. Because he was like a 2940 guy, but he was like the fourth best guy on the team, even as a senior in the 10,000, because they were loaded. So he makes the trials, thinks he's no talent. Everyone thinks they're not talented in this sport, because I guess there were certainly more talented people like Don Cabral in his class. Yeah. The, I will say the depth chart for that Ekaden trip was way out of whack, because I had basically been emailing the guy who organized it, Jack, Jack Foltz, and I was saying, like, you know, I've been training over the summer, but I'm not, like, super fit, and... You know, he ended up taking me anyway, but I got there and I was like, okay, I don't, you know, I'm probably around 15 flat shape or whatever, which is nothing crazy. Whereas Tommy was in a lot better shape and like we all ran this track race at the end of the trip. The alternates who did not race in the actual Ekaden all ran in a track race. And I think I ran a gentleman's 1503. My teammate, college, uh, best friend, Phil Roy, he was like a little bit behind me. And Tommy ran like definitely well under 15 minutes. And there was like a million Japanese guys in between. Like that was probably the most people I've ever seen in a track uh, at the same time. But he was, he was definitely should have been higher on the depth chart. He was in much better shape. Probably actually, I think if he replaced Kyle Merber on the relay, he would have split faster than Kyle did because Kyle did not acquit himself too well on that race. So yeah, Tommy, uh, fond memories of that trip. Let me read the, the last paragraph of his email. I continued running a bit since college. I was lucky to qualify for the trials in 2016. This is the pre-cheater fly era. I got in the easy way with a half marathon qualifier. Then he took three years off from the sport and made the effort to go from couch to trials. He gave myself six months starting in June 2019 to go from zero miles per week to run CIM in the Houston half. I really thought I got into 219 and 64 flat shape. In the span of six months. And I think he ran like 64.10 or something and just missed it. 64.10 would have made it, right? Isn't it uh, well, 65 minutes is the trials, right? Uh, he didn't make it, but he came close. Crazy. When in PS, when is the Let's Run IPO coming? Also, so if you're an investment banker and we can go public, take advantage of the, of the stock market pop with these vaccines and everything. Now that the vaccine's out, John, can we can we go into like vaccine conspiracies? What do you mean the vaccine's the out? Well, it's it is not announced. out. I mean, companies have you know, announced breakthroughs and stuff, but I, I'd prefer not to go into. I'm just going to head it off now. No, I don't want vaccine conspiracy talk here. Uh, okay, I'm just going to start a thread, and this is all I'm going to say. Last week we didn't. There's no a vaccine that no one knew about. Sort of comes out, and they say it's 90 percent effective. Everyone's like, wow, Pfizer's going to crush it. 
And then like a week later, another company comes out with a vaccine and they say ours is 94% effective. And then now a day later, Pfizer's like, well, our final, our, 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 our report's done and we're 95% effective. Does that seem just like a strange coincidence to anyone? It does to me. I mean, I guess they're based on similar technology so that the rates would be the same. But I don't know, John, man. I mean. You're saying Pfizer said they were 90% and then a week later they said they were 95%? Yes. And it just happens to be like slightly higher than the other companies. Of course, Robert. I thought the exact same thing. Glad we think a lot. As you guys are going through emails, I started searching. Here's one from a guy, Trent Cox. I always get a kick out of the political talk and COVID talk and how it irks Jonathan. So this sec- uh, this section is dedicated. Trent, you're irking me right now with that email. Uh. So I, I'm all into the, I'm all into getting the vaccine. But if one of them is like three percent better than the other, I'm going to make sure I get that one. Anyways. And since we're doing emails, I got another one. I think this may try to bring, to bring Robert down to earth. This one's from Brett Gleamer. My, my apologies if I mispronounced, mispronounced that. And he says, you got in yesterday's podcast, it was two weeks ago, you all talked about Oklahoma State beating Iowa State in a tiebreaker. Now the NCAA rules for this don't make any sense. And the rules are they line up the first five and see how they did head-to-head instead of going to the sixth or seventh man. He says, I will completely disagree with you. The 6th and 7th place runners are already used as displacers, and they should not de- determine the outcome of a meet in a situation like this. What happens if a school only has 5 runners? They automatically lose. And what other sport, when there's a tie at the end of regulation, do they go to the bench players? Can you imagine telling Jordan or James they have to sit out overtime of the NBA Finals because rules state that we have to go to the bench players? The high school system should actually match the college system. I was at the race on Saturday, and it was so cool to see the head-to-head matchups. This is what the sport needs. Robert, was that your opinion? He's got a good point there about the bench. It's an interesting take, but... But, no, the 6th and 7th man, they're key, key team members. Well, kind of not, because I remember when I had the 6th and 7th man, I'm like, God, if I could just be the 5th guy. But the bench players, that's the JV, baby. That's the JV. I like putting the 6th guy in the position to be the hero. Like, you win the meet, and your 6th guy is, like, the reason why? He's a legend forever. I think that's awesome. I do think our email here had a... It's a pretty good argument, though. Um, I still am t- on team sixth man, but I-, I support that. You know, I think I think of it as like a penalty shootout. You know, you get your top five, and yeah, but if you're still tied off to the top five, then you go to the bench, the, the crappy players. Uh, actually, speaking of cross country, we do have a cross country meet. So it's weird. Middle of November, we had a cross country meet in Terre Haute. It was not a national championships, but there were some pretty interesting results there. We had pro races. Uh, Paul Chalimo went out there, the Olympic silver medalist at 5,000 meters, and got beat by Mason Furlick, uh, 23-43 to 23-53. Furlick beat Chalimo. In the women's side, Amy Eloise Markov, I think that's how you pronounce it now. I'm not totally sure. Uh, Former Washington runner now with Reebok Boston Track Club. She wins there. And for me, the result of the day was Wyoming high schooler Sydney Thorvaldson. She ran 16.38, won by 40 seconds. She broke the course record by 11 seconds, which was previously held by Sophia Dudek, the 2019 Footlocker national champion. Anna Rora, who was from Indiana, she ran that course a bunch. She won Footlocker twice. Her best time on that course was 17.08 uh, in 2014, which was the time the year she won Footlocker for the second time. 
Uh, so I, I was really impressed by that time by Thorvaldson. She was third at NXN last year behind Caitlin Tui and Taylor Ewart. She's going to Arkansas next next year. I just thought it was cool. I'm glad that the NSAF put on the meet. We got a couple other sort of quasi high school national meets coming up. I think one's in Alabama, or a couple in Alabama, one in Florida. We got the Texas meet in Lubbock, and they also hosted the D2 National Invitational this weekend. And that was won by Alabama Huntsville over Colorado Mesa. Some of the top schools, or not top schools, but like Adam State's not doing that well this year. Some sort of traditional D2 powerhouses that you think of. And I think some other schools actually couldn't make it because of COVID. Um, on the women's side, Dallas Baptist, friend of the program. Shout out Kelsey Bruce. Yes. Assistant coach at DBU. Should I take credit for this championship? Jacob Phillips, the coach there. Long-time coach, big fan of the show. And folks, I mean, he was one of the people that signed up for the Lechon.com summer base training program. Jacob himself wanted to know how the genius of John Kellogg and Robert Johnson worked. Signs up for the program, then his women's team wins a national championship. Coincidence? I don't know, man. I don't know. He admitted that his girls had a really good race. Um, just sent me an email. I don't really actually think they were on the Lechon.com summer training program, full disclosure, but hey, maybe some of the takes on there impacted him speaking of teams if any if any high school coaches or college coaches if you want your runners to save 20 percent on running shoes that's available to our subscribers any coach who signs up your team can get the discounts for free either email me wejo at letsrun.com or just sign up and then email us and we will get the whole team hooked up on the 20 percent off on running shoes and also the tippers, you guys can still tip the podcast. I don't. We have not made this clear. Regular subscribing monthly tippers to the podcast actually get access to the bonus podcast. So go into um, Pinecast and you should be able to figure out how to do that. John, I don't know if your tippers knew knew that, but tips are still coming in. I didn't know tips are still coming in because I haven't seen a tip for months. So I didn't know if they just stopped or if you were hoarding them. We need an explanation. COVID, John, have been, been putting them in the market for you. They're ramping up. You know, we're trying to make this money run maybe we should convert we've had big tippers like des linden gave how much of a tip last year 50 bucks 50 bucks john maybe we should you should convert her to the monthly so she gets access but so i just wanted to i feel like if you donate 50 dollars, you should just get access i mean that's pretty that's, that's true fairly we, we, generous tip. we need to coordinate these things going forward so that's an option Speaking of D2 uh, Nationals, I'm going to read from part of this email. The, the Dallas Baptist women, the highest they'd ever finished at Nationals was 22nd. But Mr. Phillips writes, these kids have been through so much. And we had someone in Mark Mitch, that's the coach at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, who put on this meet. It was his idea he, he originally to do it. Who wanted to give the students a season whenever the NCAA was af- afraid to do so. Every day we ask our kids to show up, live a simple life, not go out, wear masks, social distance, etc. And my team did a terrific job at that. It's probably the most stressful season I've coached, and I've been here for 16 years. But I can't tell you how relieved I am for it to be over. The students did such a terrific job of doing what we asked them to do so we could have a season. I'm just so proud of them. So congrats to everyone who ran in the race just for making it there. A lot of teams dropped out at the last minute because schools wouldn't pay for it since it wasn't official NCAA championships. But a, a cool um, you know, event for sure. Now, Weldon – sorry, not Weldon, Robert – I want to address some of your secret stats, I think, pertained to this Terre Haute race with uh, Chalimo and Mason Furlick. Can you 
please enlighten us with the information that was too good for us to know in the re- lead up to this podcast. Well, yeah, last night, John Kellogg and I were just trying to figure out, like, I mean, how cool is First of all, we had a professional cross-country race in America. Shout out to Cross Country Town USA, Terre Haute, and, and any of the sponsors. Amazing. But I was trying to, like, analyze some of these times. I mean, the, the, the like, what was the most impressive performance? And obviously, this high schooler's time, 1638 to win by 40 seconds. I mean, that's insane. So I asked John Kellogg to, like, convert everything. He converted the winning time in the men's race for Mr. Mason Froelich, the former NCAA steeplechase champion, to only like 1420 for 5,000. So not super fast. But, you know, I said, well, what, what about converting this women's elite 16, Amy Louise Neal? I mean, she won 2017 for 6K. What is that? He's like, well, that's 1654 5K pace, but she's running an extra 1,000 kilometers. He's like, I would convert that down to about 1640. So the high school girl, her name is escaping me right now. John, help me out. Sydney Thorvaldson. She might have been able to win the pro race. And you're like, is that possible? Like, do we make a mistake? But then you look at the second place finisher. I mean, the second place finisher in this elite women's race was Emma Wilson. I mean, she's a NAIA runner. Now, she's not your normal NAA runner. I mean, she went to Illinois last year for her freshman year, but she, she was a 14th at Footlock. I mean, a 14th at NXN as a junior and 32nd at NXN as a, as a senior. Went to Illinois, did terribly. Transferred home to, um, in, to Huntington College in Indiana and is now rocking it. So good job to her. But, I mean, it, it doesn't – yes, I think that this high school girl would have been right up there if she'd been in the pro race. I mean that would yeah I mean that doesn't shock me because remember last year at Club Cross Caitlin Tui showed up and ran against a bunch of pros Caitlin Tui was the NXN champ she was only a couple seconds ahead of Thorvaldson in that race and she finished second against a bunch of pros so it doesn't shock me that she, I mean it gets to how impressive Thorvaldson's run was obviously because Amy Eleanor Neal herself was second at NCAA Cross back in 2017 but yeah, that that kind of makes sense to me. But I I gotta say, Robert, first of all, you're asking like John Keller to convert and tell us what these times mean. They've been running cross country eight Ks in Terre Haute f- like for twenty years. People kind of know what a twenty three forty three eight K is worth. And I would also say, I think John's kind of shortchanging him here because my PR. All right, you know, my PR in the 5K was 14.25. I never ran faster than 24.59 in Terre Haute. I think I probably could have done faster. But anyway, to get into specifics here, 23.43, this was not great conditions. It looks kind of like windy and wet, you know, not particularly fast. I don't think you can just come up and say 23.43. I, I think it's worth more. I think it's worth faster. Most of the guys who run sub-24 on Terre Haute could run sub-14, I think. It's very dangerous to compare times, John. Into your hope because based on how wet the course is, it could vary. Right. I mean, look at the NCAA by a minute or minute and a half some some years. So, yeah. Anyways, I, I just think I was trying to figure out which is the most impressive. Clearly, the high scorer wins the props here. Also, I'm going to give a shout out to the to the male podcast listener. I don't want to say his name. High scorer did very well at a state meet, but he ran in this race, struggled a little bit in the 60s. But he'll be running in the second and another meet this weekend in Alabama. We've got your back. Speaking of converting times and the great John Kellogg, did you guys see this? Josh Cox, the agent, former Olympic trials qualifier, I think U.S. 50K record holder at one point. Anyways, he's put out a tweet. He represents Sarah Hall, 
Sarah Hall is not satisfied with her second place in London. She's going to be running this, what's it called, John? The Marathon? Take a guess. You're halfway there, Robert. What do you think the last word of that event is? Challenge. Oh, project. Marathon project in December. They're running a marathon with, you know, a bunch of Americans. And Sarah Hall is running a marathon in practice. And Josh says she ran the last 12.2 miles at 517 pace. So I started the thread on Let's Run saying, sub 220, here we come. What does this mean? Um, pretty impressive stuff. John was impressed as well. I mean, he would assume that if she ran all out in a half marathon without the half marathon warm up, she could have gone sub 510 pace for the half marathon. So Molly Huddle's American record of 67.25 is 508 pace. So Sarah Hall could be, you know, he th- John thinks she's probably in about 510 half marathon pace. I mean, she's n- n- not out of the question that she could be in half marathon U.S. record shape right now. Well, I think she could be in marathon U.S. record shape right now because that's what she's racing in December. And remember, she ran 2201 in London last month. That was in pretty terrible conditions. We all thought that run was probably worth somewhere in the 220s possibly even faster. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see 219.36, Dina Castor's American record stood since 2006. This is another sign that it could be under serious threat uh, on December 20th. Well, one, is Alephine Tulema going to run this thing? I kind of assume so, but I haven't really looked at the fields. No, she's not entered. Oh, because I know Ben Rosario is putting this thing on. That's kind of crazy, though. I mean, Sarah Hall, who didn't make the Olympic team, she was second at London, but... She just keeps putting up these results. I'm like, is she really the best American marathoner? It is pretty phenomenal. 37. Like, if I told you, you know, five years ago that Sarah Hall would, I mean, she's not, she doesn't have the American record in the marathon yet. But if I told you five years ago she would run 222 at age 37, you know, I'd be like, Sarah Hall, the 1500 runner, the steepler, she's now a 222 marathoner. She got second in London. I would have thought you were crazy. Of course, just because she's in half marathon American record shape doesn't mean it's going to happen for the marathon. I mean, Molly Huddle has never run fast in the marathon. I'm going to point that out. Well, I, the, uh, the other thing about Sarah Hall, Sarah, I mean, Sarah Hall, to be fair, has run fast in the marathon. But if you look at some of her recent results, she does race a lot, but she doesn't always, be, you know, she, she runs two marathons in quick succession. And not both. Of, it's hard for everything to come together. And if you look at some of her most recent results, she has had trouble sort of stringing two really good ones together like last fall she ran berlin went excellent 222 16 but then dropped down in new york didn't go great for her in the trials and then 2018 hold on okay actually sorry i take that back that happened that was her most recent sort of attempt at it but then back in 2017 she actually won frankfurt in a personal best at the time of 227 and then came back that was in october 29th she came back on december 3rd and won it uh, the CIM, which is the U.S. National Championships that year, in 228.10. So she has actually have a record of running well in two marathons in a row. But this is, I think people don't totally forget that. Running 222 in October 4th and then coming back in December and running another one, it's not a guarantee. Speaking of Sarah Hall, that brings, brings us to the, we need, we need music. Anybody want to send us some music? Also, if you want to reach the podcast, call 1-844-LET'S-RUN, option 7. We need a little user audio, 1-844-LET'S-RUN, option 7. Or if you just want to talk to us, go ahead. But the podcast voicemail is secret, option 7. Sarah Hall, this is the deleted thread of the week. Like, what is wrong with our moderators? 
should we call them out by name? Because now we can see who deleted this. This is deleted by Malmo. Malmo, please get with the program. Well, they put an H on her first name. Maybe that's why. I don't think so, though. Sarah Hall posts, quote, <laughs> no mechanical doping sign with cheating Saucony shoes and flag. And she went out on her run to post on her Instagram. And there's a, looks like a telephone pole or something, or a parking pole or something. And it's got a sign on it with a little, it just says no mechanical doping, like a no parking sign. And it's got a little guy with big shoes on, crossed out with an extra room with Saucony shoes draped over this thing. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's pretty funny. Like she was running and saw this on her run. So one, that shows we we didn't invent the term mechanical doping, but we use it all the time. So this is probably a podcast listener. But this was great. I mean, if she sees this on her run in Flagstaff, this is great. Yeah, I just thought it was a funny sign. And I thought it was Sarah posted it with the crying laughing emoji. And I, I think, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I find it entertaining. What is Let's Run.com for if not some runner, pro runner finding this sign and posting it on Instagram and then someone draws attention to it? I mean, we're failing our readers if this thread is deleted. Yeah, so that thread is now restored and in, in the show notes. So let's be clear, though. It, Sarah may not, she's not sponsored by Nike. She's sponsored by ASICS, but I, I give a huge part of her marathon improvement to these shoes. I mean, her absolute improvement gets some, you know, okay, the shoes obviously help in some regard, but like she's clearly, compared to the rest of the American marathoners, she's way, she's much higher, ranks much higher than she was. I mean, she's improved as a marathoner tremendously. And then she's also benefited from the shoes. But to say that she hasn't made progress in the marathon as a marathoner, I think is a total disservice to where she's come from. Yes. But speaking of shoes, comes to my other story. When you think of Japan, you think of honor and integrity. I mean, I was reading an article in the Kenyan press a few weeks ago. And it was some guy's coach, a Kenyan who lived over there for a long time, helped coach the Kenyans. He's like, in Japan, if you don't succeed, you're expected to resign on your own. So it's a, it's a land of great honor and integrity, as I said. And now that's going away. And, and Nike is to blame, folks. Nike is to blame. This is unbelievable to me. I was reading race results weekly this week, and they had the results for the Nittai University time trials. It's kind of like their Stanford race over there every year. And, you know, you're just going down the results, and you see, like, third in the 5K. He's got an asterisk next to his name, seventh in the 5K, 1336. And then some of these other races, there's, like, the winner's got an asterisk next to their name, 2809 asterisk. I mean, tons. I mean, some of them have, like, Half the people in the field have asterisks in there. I'm like, why is there an asterisk next to their name? And I scroll all the way down to the bottom, and it says, wore non-regulation shoes. Like, what in the hell? You can't – why are they even in the results? If they wore non-regulation shoes, they should be DQ'd and not put in the results. This is insane. The shoes have so transformed the sports that people would rather wear their cheater shoes, put up a time, and then get their name put in the, in the results with an asterisk? I am ashamed that I made the 159.40 goat shirt, and I will be making a new goat shirt with an asterisk on it. I mean, this is embarrassing. Well, it's interesting, Robert. We had this conversation a few weeks ago because I believe the runner's name was J.C. Smith, ran a 10K PR in the shoes, and we were all like, wait a minute, why does why do these times count? I thought World Athletics said, you know, you can't use these shoes. They're too big for an international competition. I think it gets down to sort of what an international competition is. This month, 
this event might not have been deemed an international competition. In that case, I think it would fall to the Japanese Federation to make a ruling on this. Same thing, USATF. We have reached out to USATF about why these shoes would be eligible to run a trials qualifier in. They have said they're coming out with some announcement. They were supposed to come out with an announcement two weeks ago. They still haven't explained it. So still waiting on an explanation. I'd love to hear USATF's justification, though. So you can wear them in domestic competitions? So you can wear them in the trials, make the Olympic team, and just not... Amazing. I mean, then go ahead and buy them. I apologize, folks. I did not know that. That that Canadians is were in this. Wait, the Canadians were in this race, so that's an international race. Yeah, I, I, that's the thing. I'm not totally sure what qualifies as an international competition, and that's kind of why I wanted some guide back, guide feedback from USATF on it. Speaking of Japan, while we're talking about Japan, they had a number of Ekadens last week to qualify for the big Hakon Ekaden. Well, actually, this is for the New Year's Ekaden, the pro, the pro teams. It's fascinating to me. I was looking at these, and did you guys know, like, in Japan, like the Chubu Ekaden, you've got Toyota A-Team finishing first. Then you have Toyota Boshuku finishing second. And then the Tonek Team, which is also the Toyota B-Team, finishing fourth. So three of the top four teams are all Toyota-sponsored teams. This is kind of crazy, right? I mean, you can have more than one Toyota team in the same Ekaden? I've always wanted this. When I was coaching at Cornell, our 4x4s and 4x8s were so good, I wanted to be allowed to enter two relays in the, at the damn conference meet because we would have smoked Dartmouth. We could have put probably two or three 4x8s ahead of your team, John, but we were only allowed to enter one team. The Japan In Japan, they recognize this. If you have the bodies and are able to do it, all the more power to you. Well, it's it's college versus pro. I mean, Nike sponsored the Oregon Project, RIP, uh, and the Bowman Track Club and Oregon Track Club and all these teams, okay, they don't compete actually as team scored, but if they did at a meet, you would think they would compete, you know, separately. In the pro scene, at pro level, it makes sense. At the college level, I'm not totally, I don't think you should be running two teams per school at the HEPs, but I think if a team could qualify two different DMRs contesting of entirely different people, I think it would be pretty fun to see two, that happen at NCAAs. Yeah, and then some of the teams like in the bottom are kind of cool. Like you got the Toyotas and, and whatnot up top. Mazda wins another one. This is the different Ekaden. But then like the last place team, I mean, they're finishing. It's a four-hour race, but they're finishing like 40 minutes behind the winner. So that's, you know, it's an 80-kilometer race. So they're just tons. You know, there's probably 30 seconds a mile slower. But it's the City Hall team. Imagine like, where do you live, John? Brockton? Brookline. Brookline. The Brookline City Hall team running against Nike. That'd be kind of cool. You could run it. I've thought of a genius idea. John, this is something that Trump can do before he goes out, and you'll be behind it. Trump is all about, you know, making stuff in America and that sort of stuff. What if he pressures the Japanese car companies in America to sponsor Ekadens in America? He's like, you you must have corporate Ekaden team or you're out. Will you support that if Donald Trump does that, John? Uh, I'd have to think about it. I mean... I guess I'm in favor of that. We are, you know, if they, I, I'm in favor of more opportunities for pro runners. So yeah, if he's saying that those companies need to have Ekadens, I'd support that. Yeah, I think so. John, for the 47% of our listeners who voted for Donald Trump, actually, what was it, 20%? Say something positive about a Donald Trump voter, please. Say something positive about a Donald Trump voter? Or Donald Trump. Go. I guess I'm, Donald Trump, uh, I'll be happy. When he leaves office in January. That was too easy, too easy, John, too easy. Speaking of politics, actually, the U.S. Senate passed unanimously the Rodchinkov Act to make, like, international doping illegal. 
This already passed the U.S. House unanimously. So this is the only thing that America can unanimously pass. Yet, <laughs> I've been reading headlines how WADA and stuff is like very pissed off with this legislation and says it could really undermine international U- anti-doping. This is just kind of crazy. Whereas USADA Chairman Travis Tigert is um, praising the law, saying it's needed. But it, I don't know. I think this is largely show. Essentially, it says the U.S. government can go after international doping conspiracies involving Olympic sports. Now, another criticism is that like NFL and pro sports are excluded. And Tiger's and USADA's response to that is like, are you laws? We can already go after those for that. But like, some of it doesn't really make sense. Why is this needed? Is it just show? But I think it shows for one thing. Blame the foreigners, right? Blame the foreigners. America can unite to blame other people. I mean, all countries do this. Blame the illegals. Blame this. Blame that. But like, it's rare that anything gets passed with unanimous, man, unanimous consent, and it does. And then the world anti-doping authorities against it. So I don't know what to think about this. I'm just kind of confused. Like, I'm all for punishing dopers and stuff and holding them accountable. But so it's supposed to be able to make the U.S. hold international doping conspiracies accountable if they defrauded American athletes from success or something like that. So are they saying, I'm assuming this is geared towards like the Russian doping uh, conspiracy that was going on for most of the 2010s, late 2000s. Are they saying in that case they will be able to bring the Russians to court and make them pay money in America? I just kind of find that hard to enforce. Yeah, that's what I feel like. It's one of those things without any teeth, right? Like, so these people can't travel to the U.S. at some point, or I don't know how it plays out. I know they don't want to do this. I know Wada's against this as well. But, like, what about criminalizing doping? If you dope for professional sports, and it's proven, I guess there's huge privacy implications because, you know, there's no, like, presumption of innocence. But, like, then people can sue you for ill-gotten gains or you can go to jail. Like, that would really do something for doping. This this bill has been in the works for a number of years. And I can kind of I kind of think it's for show and kind of stupid, but I'm all for I don't agree with WADA at all. I'm all for criminalizing doping. Then you have subpoena power, so it should be illegal to dope. I wish they instead of trying to blame Russia, they would focus this on the U.S. Why in the hell is Alex Rodriguez doing baseball commentary on ESPN? In my mind, that guy should be in jail. I agree with you, Weldon. It's fraud. It's theft. I'm surprised owners don't sue the athletes for saying you were on drugs. You deceived me in getting a higher contract and, you know, or, or fans. I, I was expecting to see a legitimate sporting contest and saw, I saw an illegal, you know, racketeering one. So I would like to see it outlawed in the United States of America first and foremost and then somewhere else, um, you know, secondly. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we should probably look a little bit more into why they're so opposed to this. I remember looking into it a couple of months ago and thinking – it's not a great bill. I'd rather than focus on the U.S. and I'd rather than focus on the professional sports. But hey, to me, the more of it that's illegal, the better. It, 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 it's crazy to me that, that WADA doesn't want it criminalized. I, I just don't understand that. Okay, before we get to get Ken go, I do want to get Robert's thoughts on something. I'm kind of hoping I'm setting you up for Rojo's rant here because we haven't really heard a great one yet, but. I, kind of, I wanted to talk about NCAA Cross, NCAA Indoors. They're happening the same weekend. We just published a story about it on the site, about why this is happening. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have a rant to unleash on that topic, Robert? Or is there something else you want to rant about? Well, I have lots of rants. And I have uh, – I don't think I promoted this in the show. I probably should have. It's one of my more controversial takes of all time. 
may not make Weldon happy, but yes, Jonathan had an article about NCAA cross being three days after NCAA indoor track. It's a stupid, stupid decision to put it three days after. But, you know, basically all the cross country schools that are no good at track are going to skip NCAA indoors and focus on cross country, including but even Notre Dame, which is actually decent at track and has a great DMR here in Nagoose. It sounds like they're going to go cross country because they want to give Nagoose a big base before he goes into the track season, which will end with his Olympic medal in Tokyo. Well, we've gone from a guarantee Olympic team to Olympic medal. We've raised the stakes here. Well, didn't I call you up midweek and ask if he was going to win Olympic gold, John? With Manning going on, all he's got to do is beat that one guy from Kansas. All he's got to do is beat Timothy Chariot, who's had one of the most dominant stretches a miler has ever had over the last, like, three years. Apart from that, though, there's, you forget, Olympic year McCluffy. We've got Jakob Ingebrigtsen, who you totally forgot about. I mean... Anyways, and then the track teams, particularly Arkansas, which, the distance teams that have good track teams like Arkansas, which is hosting the meet, are going to focus on track and maybe not even do cross-country. So it's... No, I'm not, I'm not going to rant on that. It's just... Dumb in my Wait, opinion. the Arkansas women, which won last year, are going to skip cross-country? So Lance Harder said he thought it would be tough to run both meets. And he said he's currently planning on focusing on track. And then he said, his quote to me was, because we host and because we've already lost an indoor championship last year, I think we owe it to the non-distance runners, that part of our team, that we need to do a good job and prioritize our indoor championship. Philosophically, at Arkansas for distance running, Cross-country is a preparation for indoor. Indoor is a preparation for outdoor. So, yeah, it's very possible that you just don't see the defending champions in NCAA cross, that all their top distance runners run NCAA indoors instead. Wow. I'm not sure how strong their team was, but uh, it's obviously a good one. I mean, whether they, I guess they probably couldn't contend, though, this year, right? I mean, come on. They, they, well, then they're ranked number one in the coaches' poll right now. What? Okay, I'm just making sure. Okay, I, okay, I take it all back. See? No, they, 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 Robert, is this what, it's crazy, this what you're going to rant about? Like, holy crap, I'm going to have a Ouija's rant. Well, I don't think they really have a shot of winning. I don't know why they're ranked number one. But to, to me, first of all, the quote by Harder to me is absurd. How is cross-country preparation for indoors? That's not the way things physiologically work. You don't tr- peak in November and then get ready for something in March. Like, that's a totally different season. Like, if anything, you should peak in the fall and then use indoors as a springboard to outdoors. But, but my, my, well, I, not my rant. My, I want NCAXC. They should run that as an Ekaden this year. We should have a cool Ekaden cross country race. That way, you're not, you know, running on top of each other in a mass field. You're not what? spreading COVID. So, are you insane? Yeah. You want to have do? Well, Robert is suddenly concerned about not spreading COVID. And you want to have an Ekaden, Robert? NCAA cross. That's one of the great things we have in this sport. We we need to keep. They're having cross country races. Be, I really think be we more should TV have it friendly. You would know which team was in the lead at all times. You would you would also have course. You know, you could do a loop around Terre Haute, five k loops. It'd be amazing. Robert, there's a reason we do cross country races instead of Ekadens in this country. It's because cross country is better than an Ekaden. I like Ekadens, but come on, what's more exciting? Seeing one team way out in front, or seeing all the best runners racing head to head at the same time? I mean, to me, it's not even that close. Well, it is the greatest 30 minutes in sports because the whole season comes down to 130 minutes for all the teams at once, 1 through 31. It is great, but hey, I'm just trying to be COVID-friendly. Now, my Rojo rant, Rojo rant is is not even really related to this. It's, it's a new topic. John next week is going to be publishing an article, maybe later this week, on Kira D'Amato. She's going for the U.S. 10-mile record. Molly Huddle showing up and some others. This is Molly Seidel. Story. Not Molly Huddle. Oh, Molly Seidel. Um, 
you know, she's putting up like 10 grand of her own money to try to get this record. Wait, what do you mean 10 grand of her own money? She's- this will come out in the story, Weldon, but Kira D'Amato, she wanted to stage this record attempt and essentially, like, you know, she had to front a lot of the money to get, you know, park permitting or wherever they're going to be, race, you know, roads closures, that sort of thing, certification, sanctions. The race committee, it's organized by the credit union, Cherry Blossom people. They've put up a little bit of their money, but, you know, they don't have a, a ton to support it. So Kira D'Amato is being forced to pay for a good chunk of this out of her own pocket. It costs 10 grand to put on some random one-off r- race? Like, can't they do it on a trail? With five people. Yeah, that's what she's. That's what she told me. Well, I agree with you, John. You should examine those numbers. That seems a little high. Anyways, she's running the race, and Race Results Weekly was getting me ready for the race. It says, the special event called the Updog 10 Mile will be held on a closed USATF certified and record eligible course in an undisclosed location. Can we stop this undisclosed location crap? This is so stupid. Do we really think like hundreds of thousands of people in DC are going to run down to watch this race? Our sport is not popular to begin with. We don't need to hide the location of these things. We're not going to be spreading COVID because thousands of people, you know, are, are going going to there's watch. A, it comes back to this and probably piss John off, but like outdoor sporting events, there's not a lot of COVID. People even actually probably watching races outdoor. I'm yet to see a bunch of COVID because otherwise all the like protests, demonstrations, celebrations when Trump lost, whatever you want to call them. Well, I don't know. The media says, unless it's total political bias, they said those things didn't spread a lot of COVID. And there was a shitload, excuse my language, of people massing together. Anyway, that's my rant. But speaking quickly, we plugged this in the beginning. We got to get this before King go. One person who will not be at NC Indoors or NCA Cross Country is Arizona Cross Country coach. James Lee, or I should say former Arizona, Arizona cross-country coach James Lee. He was the coach of Bernard Lagat at Washington State. He announced his retirement like this week, midweek, and, you know, a bit unusual. And there's been a lot of turmoil at Arizona. You know, the Arizona Daily Star had a couple articles where, uh, you know, 20 athletes came through and had claims of, um, abuse and neckville pra- practices on the team. It, you know, this is a, the all team, not just cross country, track and field. So the head coach there, Fred Harvey. Um, so it's sort of, you know, I'm not sure if he's a fall guy, or if he doesn't want to deal with this or how th- this is going to work. So it's, it's, but he's, you know, very prominent coach. Lagat's coach all these years stepping down. And the kind of crazy thing, another crazy thing is Dave Murray, who was a coach before him 18 years ago, is now coming out of retirement to finish the season. Well, that's pretty interesting. Dave Murray, who who else does he coach? Do you guys know who he coaches? Well, he did coach Abdi Abdi. Abdi Abdurrahman, that's correct. He's still I still he's still sort of an advisor. I think he still kind of coaches him. So, yeah. Um, but also I found one thing interesting like these coaches because a lot so a lot of people came out and praised coach Harvey and this sort of stuff when these allegations hit the newspaper. And then uh, but there was one quote from uh, an athlete in the article probably should look up who this athlete was. I'm sorry for not having him available right now. He's like, the quote, he goes, the argument isn't that Harvey's a bad guy. It's that he didn't do his job to the fullest extent. And the idea is like, you know, these athletes had allegations and they weren't investigated seriously enough. But I thought this was interesting. It seems like Coach Harvey sort of doubled down. In the retirement announcement on ArizonaWildcats.com, here's Fred Harvey's quote, is, it has been my personal honor to work side by side with one of the best human beings I have ever been associated with," said 
No, that's what James Lee said about Harvey. No, that's what Fred Harvey said about James Lee. So I don't think any of the allegations are about James Lee, are they? It's about there's an assistant cross country coach as well, but James is in charge of more of the cross country program. So I think some people might say it comes back, you know, the buck goes to him. So it, it, they're all part of the. Not the allegations are about the throws coach. There's, no, there's Robert also. I'll send you the link. I'll put the link in the show notes. The allegations are about the program overall. Um, but you know, without James Lee was, well, but he's is probably well not now Lagat's coach, right? Like what's Lagat? Yeah, he's still Lagat's coach. Um, so he had a great run with him. And the only other thing with me, my personal interaction, I'm kind of curious about this. A lot of probably young visitors don't know this. Bernard Lagat had an A positive test for EPO, and I called up James Lee. I don't know why I didn't call up Lagat because I was training, had been training in Flagstaff around this time or soon before that. Maybe I didn't have Lagat's number. And I was like, what do you think of this test? And he's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I just I was like, how do you not know? This is kind of earlier internet, but it, like he didn't know about Lagat testing positive, and Lagat was cleared on the B sample. But that's my only other James Lee story. Well, we didn't really break down signing day. We had the regular signing period last week as well. We never break down football. signing day. Yep. I did ask, uh, when I was doing the website, uh, I do the homepage a couple days a week, and I was putting up – you know, some articles about some people who signed. It was some of the people that were running that Terre Haute race. And I, I was talking to a college coach last week, and I said, oh, did a lot of people go to UNC? It sounds like some of, a lot of them went to UNC, where John's favorite guy, Chris Miltonberg, is now. He used to be at Stanford. It's so much. It's so easy to recruit at Stanford. I was wondering if he could still recruit at UNC. And he did get some high-profile people. And this coach sort of said, well, a lot of the Instagram types went to UNC. Kind of a dig. Wait, Robert, I have a question. I thought my favorite guy was Andy Powell. Now it's Chris Miltonberg. What about Mike Smith? What does he fit into us? Who's my, what's my ranking of favorite guys? It's ageism. You love all the young coaches. And now I'm defending the old group. Now that I'm over 45, I defend. Robert just gets mad anytime anyone has success. Like I talk to them because they have some of the most successful teams in the country. And you're like, oh, you talk to this guy and he, he, you know, he said all these things like you must love him. I talk to Ed Eyestone on a regular basis too. And you don't accuse me of coming out and, you know, loving him. What about Lanana in Virginia? I assume he. Well, this is the coach said that Miltonberg had a lot early on, and Lanana fought back pretty well and got some got some some people. And this coach kind of thought that Lanana got some tougher people. So it's kind of interesting. Like, look at the University of Texas football team; they get good recruits, but then they don't always live up to it. So it, I, I think it's different when you coach at different schools. You may not attract the same type of kid. So if you get someone because your school is super cool or whatever, maybe that's not what you want. You want a gritty runner. So, anyways, I want I only want runners without Instagram accounts. Hard nose, blue collar, old fashioned kids. Speaking of NCAA news, this is crazy. We talked about you know all these schools cutting programs recently. I want you guys to guess when you go to William and Mary, how much money per year does every student pay for intercollegiate athletics? Like this is a fee that's part of the tuition or what? It's listed, yes. $560. Twelve hundred dollars. Twenty two hundred dollars. One thousand and one dollars per student. Wow. Sarah Gold, class of twenty fourteen. Must have oh, actually Nigel Gold and Helen Gold probably <laughs> paid that bill, but do, do they break out the fees for like the chemistry department? I mean, like, come on, just charge what you are. Next week's podcast, we'll discuss Joe Biden's plan to cancel student debt.
Okay, okay. We, we, this for podcast v- is going to... We v- need v- to f- finish this podcast, no. otherwise it's going to be like two and a half hours, so... I had to drop... Well, we don't have to do the whole the whole uh, Ken Gord interview. I think you guys should only do half and keep the other half just for the subscribers. And speaking of subscribers, we're having an AMA. Weldon's doing an AMA for the subscriber-only forum. And he said he sent me a text that, hey, you can ask me a question, Robert. And this is the question I would ask. Robert, can you just explain what an AMA is, people who don't know the abbreviation? Ask me anything. So you can, well, then we'll just answer any question that you ask. So I was wondering, I was going to ask, Weldon, you're friends with Paula Radcliffe, your pastoral record, you seem to think she's clean. But could it probably be possible that Trevor Bauer, the pitcher who won the Cy Young Award for the best pitcher in baseball this year, and Paul Radcliffe are one and the same? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I was thinking about this. Trevor Bauer is a fascinating guy. He used to be with the Indians. Where is he now, John? Cincinnati. He was a pretty good pitcher, and then he started complaining. All of these, they have these advanced cameras now that, that study, and it's called spin rate. The higher your spin rate, the better your fastball. Or, and he's like, look at the spin rates of these balls and how high they've been going up. People's spin rates have been improving like 20%, 30%. He's like, there's no way to improve your spin rate like that. The only way you improve your spin rate is if you put some pine tar, which is like a sticky substance. Um, there's all sorts of sticky substances you can hide in your glove, and tons of players do it. It's kind of like an unwritten type of cheating. That's not. It's technically illegal, but they never enforce it. And he's been complaining about this on Twitter for like years. And then he was getting old. I think he signed a one-year contract. And this year, guess who led the league in like spin rate and one drastically improved his performance? It was Trevor Bauer. He was like a mediocre pitcher with like a four ERA last year. Now he has like a two ERA. Look up his stats. Wait, John. I somehow missed this. You Darvish, my favorite baseball player, got robbed. Trevor Bauer, a guy who's five and four, won the Cy Young. Come on, you Darvish should have won that thing. So, what does this have to do? No. Okay, this is for the winter, for the holiday season. We're gonna go big on the podcast list. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. What? How the hell does that relate to Paula Radcliffe? I don't, I don't understand. Robert just went on a diatribe about Trevor Bauer winning the Cy Young and didn't tie it back into the question. Well, John, I was translating for you. I, I know how he thinks since I'm his identical twin. He essentially was. Look, saying, no, I'll do it right now. No, I'm just saying. Like, look, this is a guy that was last year. He was 11 and 13 with a 4.48 ERA, and finally he said, "Screw what, it." The year before, I'm going to start cheating. Uh, he said, "Screw it." I'm going to start cheating. John, his spin rate went way up this year. He's clearly using pine tar. Everybody knows it. He's going to be a free agent this year. He's going to make $100 million. He goes to five, he's a, goes from a 448 ERA to 173. Yes, the year before he had a 221. But everyone... Yeah, over a much spin, larger sample size than this, John, this year. His, his spin rate has gone way up. And it reminded me of, of possibly Paul Radcliffe. Is she clean or not? I don't know. But I know I 100% believe she was 100, I, that she was clean early in her career when she had those EPOs cheat signs out at Worlds. She was a leader in the anti-doping movement. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if after a number of years, she got like Trevor Bauer and just sick of it. They're not doing anything to enforce this. So F it. I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. And then 215.25 comes as a result of that. So if she was dirty, it's a Trevor Bauer situation. That's my take. Weldon, what do you think? I've always said I thought Paula was clean. I once said I would like stop the website if she was proven guilty. As time goes on, I'm probably more suspicious of everyone. But I still think she's clean. I probably should get her as a podcast guest. I went. I said this. I think I alluded to this on the website at one point. 
but it sort of reminds me. I went running with her. There was some stuff about her off scores coming out. So I went running with her at the Beijing Worlds. What year was that, John? Or Moscow Worlds. 2015. Moscow Worlds. 20, no, it was, it was Beijing because I remember you talked about it all the time and you brought it and up. And I remember thinking like that. more stuff is going to come out. Like some people are going after her in bad faith and some that stuff didn't come out. So that actually sort of makes me a little more suspicious. But I think maybe Trevor Bauer is a good analogy. Like pine tar, like gray area sort of stuff. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I think Paulo would, would you know, I don't think she was doing like EPO or anything like that. They might have, I guess my worst case scenario for now is they had some supplement other people didn't have or something like that, but she's always stood for clean sport. But yeah, I want to have her as a guest as a podcast because it used to be just unequivocally. There's no doubt in my mind. And now there's probably doubt with anyone. I'm like, the more I learned, you just get jaded. And Paul was the first person who told me that, like, She's like, you should be suspicious of everyone. That's what she told me in 2002 when I first met her. So I'd love to have her on the podcast and just be able to talk to her without getting into too many of the details of like off scores and this other stuff. But like, hey, Paula, we went running. More stuff was going to come out. It didn't. It actually makes me just a little more suspicious. Like, what do you have to say about that? What do you mean more stuff was going to come out? What does that just, mean? There was all this stuff saying like her off scores were suspicious. And she's like, look, people are attacking me. You know, there's... I'll find the post. Essentially, I'm pretty sure I posted on Let's Run saying, if we don't hear more sort of defending her in a year, I'm going to be more suspicious. Well, we didn't hear a ton more defending her, so I'm a little suspicious, I guess, is what I'm saying. Oh, she was going to post more defending Yes, herself. more defending herself. So that was the gist of it. I'll try to find those posts and maybe link to that in the show notes as well. But this has gone too long. Robert does not maybe does not realize that the King Go talk is one hour. We're dropping the whole thing to everyone because subscribers have already had it. I think it's worth a listen for everybody else. Here it is, Ken Go, the is he the last remaining track and field writer full time in America, kind of for a newspaper. Anyway, great read. He's a gritty guy, in my opinion. Friend of Let's Run.com. Here's Ken Go. Okay, now we're very happy to be joined by our guest today. It's Ken Go, the longtime track and field beat reporter who retired on November sixth after forty three years at the Oregonian. Uh, Ken wrote about a variety of sports. But notably college football, but to us, he was best known as one of the few remaining track and field beat reporters in a major newspaper in the United States. He covered NCAA championships, U.S. championships, Olympic trials, Olympic games, and anything Oregon related. So the Ducks, Bauman Track Club, and the Oregon Project, RIP, you name it. Uh, so Ken, thanks so much for joining us and tell us, you know, how's retirement treating you? Yeah, so far so good. My wife and I just got back from three days at the Oregon coast where the weather was not Oregon-like. It was sunny, it was warm, the wind wasn't blowing, so it was a delightful three days and a sort of a good springboard into this next chapter. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's funny. Whenever I go out to Oregon, it's always like May or June, and it's usually pretty nice, so it's kind of weird that, you know, the rest of the year it's more rainy, so I'm glad you guys had that good weather. Yeah, thank you. You've been covering track and field for as long as I've been following the sport, as long you know, as long as I've been involved in the sport. But you know, how how long have you been covering the sport? When did you first start reporting on track and field? How did you get your start? Well, I began life at the Oregonian as a high school writer, a preps writer. So I did cover high school track then. That was my first exposure to it. I, I was not a track participant in high school or college. I didn't particularly relate to the sport. I was more of a baseball guy. So. Uh, it was all brand new to me, um, a lot of trial and error, uh, 
which you can get away with at the high school level. But when they uh, had me start covering the Ducks uh, in the late 80s, uh, my lack of knowledge was really exposed and I was constantly embarrassed by what I wrote. Uh, but but over time, and, and, and uh, that was sort of hit or miss because the Oregon program went into a period there uh, in the... Uh, from the late 80s uh, through the early 2000s, where it, it wasn't very relevant locally, maybe a little more nationally. I think in a, a lot of cases, they still competed well nationally, but they didn't host home meets. And so, for the most part, so um, there was no real reason to cover them locally. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we, we sort of paid attention to them, but it, it wasn't uh, intense beat coverage. And, and uh, a lot of that was done by one of my colleagues anyway. So, it really wasn't until um, they went out and brought Vinland Anna in to sort of try to reawaken Tracktown USA that, <clears throat> excuse me, the Oregonian got interested in it again and, and made me a, a beat writer. So that's, that's really when I became in, intensely uh, uh, a track writer from usually from uh, somewhere in the indoor season. I didn't always start with the start of the indoor season because there's no indoor track here. Uh, there are indoor track teams, but there isn't a facility. Um, and through the uh, spring and, and sometimes into the summer uh, when there was an Olympics game, so Olympic games, so that's how it went. And did you did you enjoy covering track from the first time you started covering it, or did it take you a while to actually you know enjoy and appreciate the sport? No, it's scary. If you're a, a mainstream sports writer and you come in, there's so much specialized knowledge that uh, you have to have to to really write about it knowledgeably, and um, a lot of things that are counterintuitive to a a uh, uh, sports writer that covers ball games, you know, football, basketball, baseball. Um, and I had to, to learn and I had to learn a lot of times by making mistakes. And it, a lot of times it was really embarrassing. And um, that's, you know, when I, when I picked this sport up again in 2005, that's when I discovered let's run. And, um, and to be honest, you guys helped a lot because I, we would cover the same thing. And then I would look at what you guys wrote and I go, oh, God, I missed this. And I missed this. I missed this. And um, so it, it sort of helped me uh, gain a knowledge of the sport um, from a technical standpoint. Well, Ken, I think you're giving us too much credit because I was trying to do the math in my head when I'm like, well, Vin, that's kind of when we started. And I just remember going to meets in Oregon and like meeting you and seeing you. And I'm like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Maybe you helped us with the Oregon scene. And I don't know. I just, well, first of all, I want to kind of jump in and thank you for all the you've done for the years and, you were you were a good guy. Like you were helpful to us. Anything we needed with Oregon and that sort of stuff. So I'm glad our articles could help in some way with you because it's interesting to hear you talk. Like, oh, I I really messed up, and I'm like, what? No, this guy knows track and field. Like <laughs> Ken's a track and field guy. So it's interesting to hear the transformation. What I most appealed to me about the sport were the people, um, the actual events. Uh, you know, when they, when it was a close race or. Uh, you know, a close competition in the shot or the long jump or the pole vault or whatever. That, that was fun. But the actual technical parts of, of how you throw the shot or how you train to be a good 100-meter runner, that didn't resonate with me as much as the people. And um, I found track and field athletes and coaches fascinating people. They were uh, tend to be very articulate, um, very knowledgeable about what they do and, and why they do it, and uh, very easy to interview. I don't – maybe – Football players are jaded. Um, they get interviewed so much uh, that it, uh, it doesn't ever come across as fresh and interesting. And I really rarely had that problem with the track athlete. Um, 
I, I love talking to track athletes. People like uh, Nick Simmons, uh, uh, very generous with his time, very interesting in what he said. Um, that I always had to make sure my recorder was going, though, because I, that I had no chance of keeping up with Nick Simmons in full flow with notes. I mean, it's just his, it was, uh, he was so articulate and he spoke so rapidly and it all made so much sense that, yeah, that, that darn recorder better be working. Yeah, Nick, Nick was definitely great to cover. I only got to cover him towards the very end of his career. But is there anyone else that really stands out? Any personalities you really enjoy talking to or any stories that stand out? Well, it'd be more, you know, there'd be more that they don't. Uh, um, Dan Steele, who was a longtime assistant track coach at Oregon and, and later went on, he he was fun to talk to. He was a great interview. Uh, English Gardner, who was a sprinter at Oregon, um, went on, uh, I, I believe is still running professionally and maybe getting towards near the end of her career, but still competitive at the international level. Um, uh, God, it just, there's so many. I, I hate to start throwing them out there because I'll miss somebody. It's easier to say that they were almost all good. Mm. And you think it's just, you know, they're not, maybe it's just they're not covered as much as football players, that they're, they're eager for the spotlight. Is that why you think we have more articulate or more interesting people than maybe football or basketball or something like that? I think, you know, there's, I don't want this to come across wrong because there are smart football players, but I think on the average, um, track and field athletes are more reflective and, um, they're, they're probably, uh, intellectually more successful at college and, and tend to be more articulate. And I don't know why that is. I mean, you guys were both track athletes, so maybe you have a better understanding of, of why that is. Uh, in part, maybe, uh, in college, very few track athletes are on full scholarships, so they have to be serious students or that they don't get to compete. And that might be part of it. I don't know. I guess maybe distance runners are spending a lot of time out there putting in the miles. You got to think about something, right? So um, maybe you think about uh, uh, why you're doing what you're doing and, and uh, uh, how to explain it. I mean, I don't really know, but that's just my experience. It's all anecdotal. I haven't gone out and done IQ tests on people, but um, it just, uh, in my experience, track and, and field athletes. Uh, were much more interesting to talk to uh, over a longer period of time. Yeah, I remember Alan Abramson, who's an Olympic writer and covered other Olympic sports. He's kind of said the same thing about track athletes. And I can only speak for distance runners, but you're saying it applies to shot putters and everybody else. So I don't know. I think for distance running, and maybe this applies to other sports in track and field, distance running, you're just out there. It's such a grind you're probably constantly questioning, like, why am I doing this? Whereas, like, football, there's a team element, there's camaraderie, there's probably parts in practice that are just a lot more fun. And distance running, yeah, maybe there's fun in practice. You're, you're essentially, you know, running next to someone for an hour, hour and a half. On an easy run, that's easy. So you're going to talk about stuff, so th then you're thinking. But I don't know. I haven't figured it out. I always wonder, like, why do we run and why are we doing this? And But that probably comes out because – Anyone who's in track and field first didn't get into it for the like fame and glory. They might have been good at it, but at some point, it's kind of off the beaten path. Yeah, I think that's true. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not just distance runners. Adam Nelson was a great interview at Shot Twitter. He was phenomenal to talk to and, and phenomenal to watch. I mean, he put on a show. I think some track fans don't pay a lot of attention to the shot, but he, he commanded attention when he was out there. Probably Dartmouth's greatest ever track and field athlete, I think. And he was also president of his fraternity at Dartmouth. He was a, uh, you know, like all around very fascinating fellow. 
Um, but I'm interested, like, you, you know, you mentioned you really love the people, but I'm sure you also covered a lot of great meets, you know, at, at you know, the Olympics or at, at Haywood Field, U.S. Championships trials. What races really stand out to you as sort of the favorite ones you got to witness? The favorite thing I ever covered in my entire career, not just track, but all sports, was the 2008 uh, Olympic trials final in the 800 meters, which I, I still go back and watch that uh, NBC replay of that and get chills um, with the way Simmons came out of the back and, and weeding behind him. And uh, at the time, I did not notice Christian Smith coming up the inside. I didn't even see him dive at the finish line. And I was just sort of mesmerized by the way that uh, Simmons and Weeding had come out of the back and, and the way they uh, challenged down the home straight and, and won and the crowd reaction, which I don't know that I've at any sporting event I've ever been at if I heard a crowd that loud. Um, and then I think I was sitting next to Doug Bender, uh, who now is the editor for Dystat, and he elbowed me. And he said, I think Christian Smith got third place. And then they showed the, the, the results up there on the scoreboard, and damned if he didn't. And uh, as an Oregon writer, that probably resonated with me more because all three guys uh, were either from Oregon or, or um, represented Oregon. I, uh, Christian Smith was not uh, from an Oregon college but he ran for otc elite and simmons my gosh he was a division three athlete at willamette and he everybody thought he had a chance to make the team i don't know how many people thought he was going to win and, and weeding was still running for oregon and everybody thought you know he he's a good athlete and and you know his sometime in the future he might make it on the international level i don't know if anybody thought he was going to make the olympic team so um that was amazing and then another one uh when Ashton Eaton set the world record at the Olympic trials, again, uh, what a moment. And the, again, the, the crowd response was incredible. Um, and then the way the athletes, the other athletes on the track sort of helped him along, which I think is another part that's really cool about track. It, it's hard as some of those athletes compete against each other. Um, it's, it's an individual sport and, and they can, they, they find a way to separate um, their own, attempt to to do their best uh and still appreciate those around them who are uh, also doing that and, and may do it a little bit better and um uh, on that day in the decathlon i think all the other decathletes were pulling for ash and eaton to break the world record and he did it was it was crazy yeah no, the, i mean those two were crazy races i remember curtis beach who was like he, he was a better middle distance runner than ash and eaton but he sort of pulled aside and let eaton break the tape to get the world record. It just feels like every every Olympic trials, there's like that one race that really stands out or that one moment. It was that in 2012. It was the, you know, the 800 in 2008. And I think in 2016, it was probably that men's 5K with Bernard Lagarde winning. And that wasn't, you know, I don't think it was quite as historically significant as those other two, but I don't know. That's just like the, the, the best meet to go to, I think, to as a fan in the United States is the Olympic trials. And yeah, really special. I agree. I'm curious, though, what is your press box to mean it? Because I know when I'm watching those races from maybe the top of Haywood Field, I can't help. I, I don't root for athletes, but I can't help and yell. Like, if I see Lagat steaming down at the outside with 200 to go, I'll just be like, oh, my God, look at Lagat. Or if he holds him off, I'll be like, oh, my God, that was crazy. I'll be I'll be yelling, not for any one person, but just sort of the race. Do you, do you ever get like that, or are you more chill? What's your demeanor in the press box? I'm usually trying to make sure that I see what's going on and that I can adequately describe it later. So, um, yeah, I don't recall ever yelling. Um, 
but but just want to make sure I get it right. You know, when I when I write about it, I I want to correctly describe what happened. And and to me, that's not just what's happening on the track; it's what's uh, the crowd's doing, especially at Hayward Field, because um, the the fans are tend to be really engaged in the competition. So, um, yeah, uh, there's too much going on in my mind to maybe uh, do what the the more natural thing, which is to just appreciate what's happening. I'm I'm too focused on what's happening and and can I describe it correctly later? There's one thing I'm curious about. Like I got into sports journalism. I think many people who, most people who do this because we love sports and I'm always curious, like if I cover this for 40 years, am I going to get jaded? Am I not going to appreciate that? Do you ever feel like that happened to you in your career or do you feel like you like it, love sports just as much as when you started covering them? No, in some ways, I I, ha- I think I did get jaded. Um, my wife uh, doesn't; she's a sports fan. Um, and she doesn't like watching sporting events with me because I tend to think, "Why did this happen? What what's the next step?" I was just thinking about logically uh, what's happening in the game and 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 not being a fan. Not I, I, it's hard for me to stand up and cheer. So she's like, "Oh, look at that! Look at that great pass! It's a touchdown!" And I'll think, "Well, how did the receiver get free on that play?" So it's like. Um, I'm looking at it in a real different way, and um, I, I, as you mentioned in your opening, I, I do have covered a lot of college football. That was I was into that actually before track. I, I first started covering um, the the Oregon Ducks in 1984, and at various times covered Oregon State, and was the Oregonians roving what was then the Pac-10 writer. Where I was, we didn't really have a national writer like maybe the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times or the Washington Post does, but I was uh, a regional writer. I went up and down the coast to the, the Pac-10 games uh, at the time, the, the top games every week. But I have become jaded about college football a lot. I mean, I still like the, the players, and I can enjoy the games at the skill level that, that people play at. But the stuff around the sport I find very distasteful, the amount of money that's spent on uh, college football and um, the fact that a lot of these guys uh, – I think are being used for their ability by the schools they're at, at the, at the major college level. And then just sort of discarded after it's over. I mean, to, to me, the, the fans and the boosters, their allegiance is essentially to the uniform, um, not to the individual. And when the individual's gone, um, they care about him. If he goes on in the NFL and has a great career, they, they like to take credit for that and root for him. But, but if the guy doesn't make the NFL, he's forgotten. And he's, um, that guy went out there and, put his body on the line on the gridiron for four plus years and, and might have come out of it with some sort of disabling injury. And um, so what? I mean, there's a new, new team, new, new players, uh, new reasons to be excited. So yeah, that, that part has jaded me. I'm less jaded about the, the track athletes, but it's, it's stuff around the sport, you know, the, the way it's governed. Uh, um I, I find what USA Track and Field does sometimes just incomprehensible. Um, like that, they're not that interested in in making the sport better. It seems to me I, I'm, I might be missing something, but um, uh, they're just caught up in in the governance of it and um, and 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 you know sort of maximizing the revenue that, that they can get out of it. But but the athletes sort of get left out, and um, that bothers me. Yeah, I think one of the criticisms I've heard 
you know, during this pandemic is just USATF. They they did hold like a road mile championships in I think July or August or something, but really haven't they didn't seem interested in having a national championships. And I get that it's tough, but like you look at the other major sports, well, major sports are finding a way to hold these meets and USATF, whether it's a money issue or a lack of interest really hasn't. And most of the coaches are like, well, we don't expect them to anyway, but I don't know. I think it's a bummer for the athletes. Not, you know, for, it was the first time since like almost civil warrior, I think that there wasn't a national championships in track and field. Yeah. You know, um, I, I get it on one level because the pandemic's serious, and with track you're bringing people in from all over the country um, at, to a single place, and um, to make it financially feasible, you want to have fans, right? I mean, they're not making enough money on it on TV contracts to to make it pay off that way. So, um, but I mean, on a local level, I think uh, they people did stage track meets. We had some here that the big friendly track meets. Um, there were some in uh, Southern California, I think some in Georgia, some in Michigan, uh, where they found ways to, to make it safe. And it would have been interesting to see if uh, on a national level, uh, USATF or somebody could have found a way to, to, to use those same principles and, and guidelines that, that they used to make them safe at the regional level and, and do something. Because, I mean, you look, Europe, you're okay to think during the summer they were probably handling the, the pandemic better than the United States was, but they, most of the countries in Europe seem like they found a way to hold national championships and they're not coming from as far apart as the United States, but you know, you would think they might be able to figure it out somehow. And it just didn't, it didn't even seem like they were interested in doing that to me. Uh, that's what I got out of it. But I want to go back. You mentioned football, you know, you, you've covered football for a long time as well. And the differences between the athletes, what, what were the other differences you found in covering the two sports? Like, was it just in terms of media? Was it just there were more people covering football or anything else that really stands out to you? Yeah, over time, uh, access to college football players has become more and more difficult. Um, uh, college coaches have uh, really limit how much, uh, uh, I guess access is the right word that uh, you can have to individual players. Um, and, and for me, sports has always been about the people participating more than the competitions anyway. And the stories of which I'm most proud that I've done have, have generally been profile stories um, where you get to know somebody and, and sort of explain about them in a way uh, uh, that makes them resonate with the readers. And I, I think in football, it, it's maybe even more important because uh, the public doesn't see those guys. I mean, they, they're all padded up with helmets and and pads um, and it, sometimes when they take off their helmets uh, and you engage them in that way they become a lot more interesting at least to me um, uh, there was a uh, running back at Oregon um, several years ago when I was covering the team uh, named LaMichael James who was he was a finalist for the Heisman and uh, fairly guarded with the media lots of times uh, but but I had a chance to meet him and, and sort of get past that um, and he, he's a fascinating guy. And Kenyon Barner, I, I don't know if he's still in the league, uh, but he was up until last year for sure. Um, also another just fascinating person. Um, once you got past the, the how, you know, how did you see the whole, um, what were you thinking uh, when you passed the uh, line of scrimmage? Um, uh, what did that pass look like? Uh, was it well thrown? I mean, you get all the pro forma questions and, and really get into to their lives and, and, you know, 
what makes them tick. To me, that's interesting. So I want to ask about a, a track and field personality who I would say is was generally guarded with most members of the public. This is Alberto Salazar. Now, you're one of the few media members, you know, maybe the only one that he would talk to on a semi-regular basis. What what was it like covering him? Um, I went into it pretty guarded, actually, uh, because I had um, read uh, a lot of what other people have said about him. And um, when I first started covering him, uh, John Cook had just split with the Oregon Project, and it was pretty acrimonious split. Um, and I was hearing a lot from John Cook about why he didn't like Alberto and, and how unethical he thought he was. Um, and I arranged to do an interview, a one-on-one with Alberto um, at the Nike campus. Uh, and I, he sort of disarmed me because he dealt with all those questions head on um, in a way that seemed uh, open. Um, and so I, I wrote a story, a profile of, of Alberto, uh, and he liked the story. He thought I was fair to him, um, and that probably gave me some cred with him then. Uh, um, he uh, has at times thanked me for having an open mind about him. I, I don't think a lot of people in the sport do have an open mind about him. I think they have made up their mind uh, from the start that this guy's up to no good. Um, and there, there is some circumstantial evidence that might lead you to believe that, um, but I think it, most of the evidence I've seen, the evidence of which I'm aware, is circumstantial. Um, I know he, he's been banned, and I know uh, a lot of uh, uh, nailed him on uh, several things. I never saw any of those things as particularly heinous. They, they uh, indicated to me a guy that was uh, trying to stay within the rules while getting as close to the line as he could, which is that sort of Alberto. Um, and in a couple cases, uh, it looks like he, he maybe got over the line, um, a little bit, but I, I never saw it as, uh, Ben Johnson or Marion Jones type cheating. I, I think the, the emails he exchanged with, uh, USADA, uh, during that period show he was trying very carefully to stay within the rules. So, um, I think he, he liked the fact that. I had an open mind about it, and then I hadn't made up my mind that he was guilty. Well, it's it's interesting because there are some people like so. We just read this book, "When It All Costs" by Matt Hart. I'm not sure if you've read it yet, but one of the lines in there, um, he mentioned you, and he said, you know, that you had historically contorted his objectivity. Those are his words in an effort to stay in the Nike men's good graces. I think that sometimes comes up on our message boards too. Someone say, "Oh, you got, you can go. He's too soft on Alberto. You know, he's the only one he talks to." Do you think that criticism is fair? Well, I, I want to separate two things to start with. I want to separate Nike and Alberto. Um, I think a lot of the criticisms Alberto takes are actually criticism of Nike and the way that Nike conducts business, which I think is unfair. Um, Nike is a very difficult organization to cover. They're, um, for instance, Phil Knight has never consented to an interview request with me. Um, dealing with Nike PR is an exercise in futility often because no matter what you ask, they say no. Um, uh, so I reject the criticism that I'm soft on Nike. I, I don't. I think you'd have a hard time uh, finding uh, anything that I've written that would uh, indicate that I was. Um, 
the question about Alberto, I think, gets down to uh, um, how you evaluate the evidence. And to me, I've seen very little persuasive evidence that he was a systematic cheater. Now, maybe you can um, say, well, it depends on uh, how you define cheating. And, and that might be a fair point. And, and maybe uh, people are saying when they criticize me for for being soft in Alberto that uh, he was I'm not uh, that I'm not uh, being critical enough of him for being in a gray area or uh, violating the spirit of the rules. I've never understood the spirit of the rule thing anyway. Um, to me, that's a subjective opinion. I mean, who's going to who's who's defining what the spirit of the rule is? That there is a rule, and it's the rule is black and white, and it, you either have uh, broken that rule or you haven't. And um, the spirit of the rule thing gets gets really iffy, and and maybe that's uh, partly f- uh, from covering other sports. Like if, if you cover baseball uh, and there's a runner on second base, he's trying to to pick off the catcher's signs and relay him to the batter, and that that's considered part of the game. Um, I know the Astros uh, this last year sort of stepped over that um, by using high tech equipment, and and that's where where baseball seems to have drawn the line about what's the spirit of the rules, but but sign stealing itself is considered part of the fabric of the game. Track seems to be much more uh, uh, strict in, its, in defining what's the spirit of the rules, but again, it's, it's an individual interpretation of what that is, and I still am yet to be persuaded that uh, Alberto Salazar did anything other than be a, a really uh, tough coach um, who uh, did his utmost to get his athletes to win and yeah, he probably stepped into a gray area sometimes and, and maybe he got too close to the line. But uh, again, not heinous, not Marion Jones, not, not you know, any of the, the, the rampant cheaters that, that were clearly caught doing something wrong. I, I, I haven't seen it. So that's interesting because one, the Matt Hart criticism I thought was unfair because I would see this criticism on Let's Run sometimes with people saying that oh, Ken's too soft on Nike, too soft on Alberto. And I thought that was an interesting distinction you made. And I'm like, well, one, Ken's talking to Alberto. He's talking to Galen Rupp. You're going to present their side of the story. I get the the fact that people think I was too soft on Alberto. And um, I tend to view that as more I have an open mind and um, present me with the evidence that he was a, a black guard and a cheater. Um, and I'll say, okay, uh, I agree. I'll criticize him too. I have not seen that evidence. I've seen a lot of smoke. I've seen very little fire. I will say uh, the stuff with Mary Kane uh, was disturbing. Um, I remember Mary Kane when she first burst onto the scene and how uh, delightful uh, a young athlete was and how full of promise and life and joy she seemed to be and, and uh, how her, her joy in the sport was, was infectious. I used, I used to like to watch her post-race interviews because she was just such a happy person and 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 she just was so enthusiastic about what she was doing. And um, whatever happened here with the Oregon Project uh, clearly took that away from her. Now, where I, I'm i not sure is, is how much of that can be pinned strictly on Alberto. Um, I, I think he probably wishes he had a, a now, in retrospect, that he had a, a woman assistant coach who could have maybe helped him deal with, with things that are um, are specific to women runners that – and especially young women runners that, and, and, um, he had not had young women runners before he had older ones, but, but never, a a young 
woman and and you know I think maybe uh if the Canes uh were to look at this in retrospect too they would question their decision to decide to to send Mary out here at at that age um, I'm not defending anything that that happened between Alberto and Mary Kane um I'm just you know the whole thing was disturbing and you know, I I feel really bad that that um that happened to her and that she lost that joy and enthusiasm for for the sport. Yeah, I think the I mean Alberto's critics I think they would also say well it wasn't just Mary because Amy Yoda Begley has come out saying she was fat shamed and you know Cara Goucher I mean the Cara Goucher they got along really well and then that ended uh badly obviously as well but I I'm curious like about the Salazar and Rupp I mean those two had such a close relationship for so many years. You know, he's been coaching Galen since he was in high school. And then suddenly, in the middle of World Championships last year, Alboda was banned and he's not allowed to ha- coach him at all. And he basically can't, you know, you can maybe say, hey, I can't coach him anymore. What do you think their relationship is like now? Do you think it's t- totally severed? Do you think they still talk as friends? Like, and how do you think it's been on both of them just not being able to have this coach athlete relationship? That they had for almost two decades. Yeah, I want to start by saying I don't really know. I mean, I, I haven't talked to Alberto since the ban. Um, so uh, he, I think, on the advice of his lawyers, he's really limiting who he talks to and what he says. So um, I don't know if they talk, uh, but I, I think they were uh, moving a little apart anyway, even before this happened. I think. Um, as Galen matured and got older, he had his own ideas about what he wanted to do. Uh, early in his career, uh, Alberto basically controlled everything. And um, I don't think Galen saw a reason not to have it that way because he was successful. But I think uh, as Galen matured uh, and became went from a high school uh, athlete to a man, I think he started to have his own ideas about what he wanted to do. And he didn't want to be controlled that way anymore. So I think... And, and to Alberto's credit, I think he, he understood that too and um, let up on the reins a little bit. And Galen began having more of a say in, in what he did and how he did it. So when the break came, I don't think it was as um, shocking as it might have been otherwise. And um, I think that's clear that, you know, Galen was ready to go his own way. He he could have joined Pete Julian's training group, which was the uh, where a lot of the Oregon Project runners went after the split. Um, had he wanted to, to continue with Alberto's philosophy, now I'm not saying Pete's a carbon copy of Alberto because he's clearly not. He's his own man and he, he trains people his own way. But if, if Galen had wanted to, to, to stay connected, whatever that, however you define that, to, to where he had been in the past, that would have been the natural move. Instead, he went outside. Um, and I think that's just because he has more confidence in himself and more of an understanding uh, of what he wants uh, uh, outside of, uh, Alberto. So I, I think that was going to happen anyway, to some extent. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, the, cause Alberto is currently, he's appealing his ban to the court of arbitration for sport. They're supposed to hear it in March. Like if they overturn it, do you, do you think Galen would go back to Alberto or do you think he would stick with Mike Smith? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I suspect they would, they would get together to an extent. But I, I also think Alberto had had let up a little bit on on like I say on how he was coaching Galen and Galen had much more of a say in how he did things uh, towards the end of his time with Alberto than he had at the beginning. So 
Um, even if they got back together, it wouldn't be uh, uh, Alberto just in total control of Galen. It, it would be Galen would, would be the primary person in charge of Galen, and, and he would accept coaching um, uh, maybe from Smith, maybe from Alberto. I don't know. Um, they're pretty, as you say, they were pretty close. And uh, Galen's dad even said he, he saw Alberto as sort of a second father to Galen. Um, and uh, part of that is, isn't running. Part of that's their religion. They're uh, both conservative Catholics, and they have a very s- uh, similar religious philosophy and orientation. And I think that'll continue until one of them dies. I mean, that that part of their relationship will always be close. But I, I think um, Alberto is is being very careful not to to violate the terms of his probation or his ban. Um, because as you say, he has an appeal coming up and, and he, I think he wants to win that appeal and he doesn't want to do anything that would jeopardize that. Well, it's interesting that you said Galen was starting to separate a little bit from Alberto or just get a little more independence because I didn't notice that, you know, from afar, but I think it was happening and it just shows sort of the insight you get there from being closer to them. Cause now I see Galen doing interviews and stuff and, I was like, wait, this is what you should do. Like, the press isn't your enemy, but if you never speak to them, like, rep- you'd probably know that's better than us. Reporters want quotes. They want access. And if you don't get it, we're human beings, right? Like, you still try to be fair, but it's like, well, well you know, are they trying to hide something? What's going on? So it's good to see Galen get outside of his shell. Yeah, and I think um, that's a good point. And I think Galen is a pretty good guy, really. I also think he's shy and reserved. And I think... Um, a when he limited, uh, when he spoke to most reporters to sessions in the mix zone, that that tended he tended to get a certain sort of question, right? I mean, that, if that's the only time people can talk to him, then that's when they're going to ask their tough questions, which maybe isn't the best time for either the reporter or the athlete, and it ma- it made him get more guarded still. And I, I think it is good that he's opening up, and he, you get to see this guy is smart. You know, he he. he uh, uh, was a four point plus student in Oregon in business. He's got a wife and he's got a family. He's, he's, uh, he cares about other people. I mean, he's not this Ottoman that I think he often got portrayed. Um, and partly because of the way, uh, he and Alberto handled that period. Um, when everybody was so, everybody at the Oregon project was so suspicious of most of the running media. Yeah, I mean, just I in my interactions with him, I've interviewed Galen probably a dozen times at this point, and I I think everything single time it just seems like he's had the walls up, and I don't think I've ever gotten to know the real Galen Rupp because just when he's talking to me, it's in a mix zone or it's a press conference, and you don't, he's not going to open up to me that way. Well, you know, that's to be honest, I think that's a point where your message boards get in the way too, because a lot of the I would always defend you guys uh, when people would comment uh, to me back when, for a long time, the Oregonian allowed comments uh, in our stories. And I used to like to interact with the readers in those comments because um, I think you could disarm some of the ones that were really vitriolic uh, if you just engaged with them and you could see that you were a person and they were a person. And yeah, you may not agree with everything, but um, both of you are come about how you believe honestly. Um but your comment sections can be very brutal uh, to the Oregon Project, to Alberto, and, and to Galen. Um, and I, th- I always draw a line there. I mean, I, I don't uh, see Let's Run as the worst of the comment section. To me, Let's Run is uh, Jonathan Galt's analysis of a race or, or uh, 
what the week that was, which I always, that's one of my favorite things to read every week, because uh, it's a great uh, synopsis and, uh, of the week in, in the sport. And, and most of the comments are really well taken. And um, it's, it's a really nice survey. To me, that's less run. But I, I stay off the message boards because um, the things you see there, whether they're about me or they're about somebody else, are just a lot of times poisonous. And um, to me, that I, there's too much going on in my life, and there's too many other stresses to get into that. So yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's certainly like a fair criticism with some of the stuff towards Galen, especially when he was young, like uh, you know, late high school, or early college years. And Weldon can probably speak more to this, but I think we admit, you know, he he got some rough treatment on there. I don't think it was fair for any teenager to experience it, and, and not just him, all sorts of runners, uh, even. People that are the nicest people in the world and the people who are open with the press, they're, for whatever reason, there, there exists in, uh, the cyber world, these people that just like to throw darts at other people. And we had them in, in the Oregonian message boards too, which is why the Oregonian did away with them. Yeah. Ken, you're touching on a few things. I mean, J- John's not responsible f- for the, you know, message board comments. I mean, that falls on me more so. And just, a couple interesting things I want to comment on first. Yeah. Galen used to just, I mean, people talk about, it's interesting because you also mentioned Mary Kane earlier. Galen probably got it just as bad as Mary Kane, but like there's this whole sex angle on top of it. He's a man. People comment on his body. I mean, Galen, if you're listening right now, like, Oh, you're an apology. I mean, I had Alberto and Vin Lanana both take me aside at the 2008 NCAA championships and rip into me. Like you have to do a better job. And I'm like, it's a public forum. And like, we went in that night and put in filters. Like you couldn't post "rup" and the word "gay" at the same time because people would make this homophobic slur. And I'm like, well, so essentially you couldn't talk about Tyson gay and gay and Rupp at the same time anymore, just because they they had a point. Like you got to stop this. But some of the, you know, we'll get these nasty. We'll get an email. Someone will fire off an email, just like cussing us out. And then, like you said in the comments, you comment back like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that." And they're like, "Oh, I didn't mean it. Like you're a real person." Like. We lose our humanity on some of these forums and this sort of stuff. And I, I love forums in general, but the bad side of them, we're, you know, we're constantly trying to improve it. Um, but yeah, and I don't want to say not every commenter does that. Obviously, it's but th- those are the ones you remember, right? You, yeah, for sure. You can, it, you can read sixty-four damage. comments, but the one that's saying uh, "Can go" uh, is a kiss ass to Alberto Salazar. That's the one I remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shame on those people. But it, I think it's also interesting because, like, in the comments or people, how they view Alberto in general, they want it to be black and white, like, terrible or great. But, I mean, Alberto probably knows this on his outlook on world. Like, you know, he's a Christian guy. Like, we're all sinners. We're all flawed. Maybe not to the same extent. And I that's where I come back to this Matt Hart sort of criticism or this Kingo kissed up to Nike. Like, one, you said there's a distinction between Nike and Alberto. And if you're having access to those guys, you're going to present their story, their quotes. So some people may not want to hear that to begin with. Like, it's part of doing your job. I always found you to be fair. I'm like, what's he's... And we still don't know. Like, Alberto, in some ways, is my arch nemesis after all these years. I have no proof that he doped any athletes. None. You know, I'm more for sure more suspicious probably of someone like Mary Slaney. Maybe she was doing that on her own. If, but my best bet is, did he rub some testosterone cr- cream on Galen secretly? You know, 
Because I think he should be banned from the sport. I think he broke the rules. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Like the testosterone experiment, I think technically violates the USADA rules. But we still don't know what happened at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, the point of the USADA rules seemed to me to be to, to keep athletes from cheating, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the goal. You want to punish cheaters. And as you say, there's no evidence that's been presented that any of his athletes cheated. And rubbing uh, a little bit of testosterone cream on cream on Alex Salazar is not doping an athlete. I mean, I, I know Alex was a pretty good high school athlete. I believe he played football a little bit at Oregon too. But he, when that happened, he was not a competitive athlete. And when Steve Magnus did that test in and, and again, it gets into what's a competitive athlete. I guess he was still running wreck road races or whatever, but um, he, he wasn't doping an athlete. And so we get into what, what was his motivation for doing these things. And, and then that's subjective, right? Well, he, he was doing this because he wanted to cheat or he's, he was doing this because he was running an independent or whatever, whatever motivation he had for doing it. Um, he wasn't doping an athlete. And my view of, of what USADA did was um, they're, they, like many others in the running community, are convinced he's been cheating systematically for years and getting away with it. Um, so they, and I've written this, it was sort of like Al Capone, right? They knew Al Capone was breaking laws, but what did they nail him for was tax evasion, right? Because it wasn't killing other people or bootlegging or running a numbers racket on the Chicago South Side or whatever it was, it was uh, for, for tax evasion. And, and here USADA got Alberto for something, but it, it certainly wasn't what we were led to believe that they were investigating him for or any of the sensational allegations that were made against him. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's a, it's a well, some people will just either you're banned or you're not, and that's all they need. But for myself, it's like, it's not the best ending. It's like Robert. I mean, anytime Robert's on the podcast, he's always like, like he was clamoring for him to be banned for years and then he actually comes out he's like oh, i'm not satisfied with this outcome so now he complains that he is banned and well i thought you guys were very fair in what you wrote about the ban too i i forget exactly what you said it but i think it's along the lines of what i said about him operating uh, in the gray area too much and, and you get too close to the line sometimes you step over it and uh again that's how i view what happened but i again i don't see anything heinous in, in terms of uh, uh, doping Galen up to the gills or having him high on EPO or whatever and, and when he won races. There, to me, there's no evidence of that. Yeah, I'd, I'd be shocked if Alberto was supplying them EPO uh, or anything like that. But I do think, look, I mean, he didn't just break one rule, he broke three. And you can argue whether he stepped over the line by a lot or just a little. To me, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him, but uh, CAS is going to make that decision. They're going to reevaluate the whole thing. Um, so anyway, I, enough on Alberto. Uh, we talked plenty about him. I'm curious about like the future track and field journalism. I mean, the Oregonian, they're one of the few papers nationwide that actually co- employs a track and field correspondent. And granted, you didn't cover the sport the whole year round and probably wouldn't make sense, uh, for a newspaper to have that, but because, you know, you had college football, there's other sports. But do, is someone going to be replacing you at the Oregonian? Will they still have a track and field correspondent moving forward? No, I, I don't suspect they will. Um, one of the problems uh, with newspaper journalism is uh, dwindling staff sizes and dwindling resources. Um, when I started doing this, our staff was probably twice the size, maybe even more than twice the size it is now. Uh, it's, it makes less and less sense uh, for us to, to cover the sport um, on a regular basis, uh, 
for several reasons. One, like I say, the, the resources can probably be spent better in other ways in, in terms of the, the readership we get, at least locally. I, I, I think what I was able to do was expand beyond local readership. So I think people, based on emails I was getting, were, were reading my track coverage around the country and in some cases around the world. Um, but I don't know how that pencils out economically for the Oregonian, really. Um, uh, so I, I, I would suspect they won't. I, I think for a while, uh, hopefully through 2022, they will continue to use me on a, a freelance basis uh, for when the, the big events come and in the period leading up to that. Um, but, you know, the, the University of Oregon itself has uh, become more difficult to cover. Um, uh, I think when Vinland Anna came in, uh, he saw a real uh, need and, and a reason for them to be cooperative with the the local media, and, and he basically threw the doors open to to me and to Curtis Anderson, who was uh, at that time the Registered Gardens beat writer, uh, and we had pretty good unfettered access, uh, which was great. And the, the other thing he did was he had home meets. He saw a big believer in trying to reestablish Eugene as Tracktown USA, and um, they they had they would have as many as five home meets during the college track season. I don't know of any other. Uh, there might be some, but I'm not aware of other uh, track programs that have that many uh, home meets, uh, at least ones who are at Oregon's level. Um, so there was a lot to write about. It, it's become more difficult now. Um, uh, uh, Robert Johnson, uh, not the, the Robert Johnson from Let's Run, but Oregon's track coach is, I think, a very good coach. Um, uh, but he sees less need for the uh, media. Um, they, under his direction, uh, they've taken a very defensible decision to, to send their athletes to where they'll get the best competition, which means often not as many home meets. Um, and he, he's, he's much more, he runs his program much more like a lot of college football coaches now, major college football coaches where the, the media access is restricted. It's, it's, he hasn't done away with it. We, we can still talk to athletes, but it's much more difficult than it was when Lenana was the coach. So there's probably less reason for us to, to cover track on a day-in, day-out basis the way I did. Well, you mentioned Vin, and we hadn't mentioned it on the podcast, but being in Oregon, sort of Vin, Alberto, Phil Knight, I think those are probably three of the biggest people in track and field. But there's this relationship, I assume, between Vin and Phil, and I don't know if you have any insight on that, but Vin, and from an outsider's 30,000-foot perspective, is sort of the one guy getting things done in track and field in America, or at least he was. Do you think, like, obviously he needed Nike's resources, but, like, do you know? Do you have any insight into his relationship with Phil? And was Vin driving that and Phil was on board with it, or it's a mutual thing, you think? And, like, now that Vin's gone, do you th think he can continue these things outside in, in Virginia or a rift there between Nike? I mean, I have no idea. I'm just sort of spitballing here. Yeah, you know, I, um, when Vin first came in, he was Nike's guy. I mean, they... They wanted to resurrect uh, the University of Oregon as a, a track and field power and also uh, um, a, a team that drew fans. To me, that, that was very important. They wanted uh, the University of Oregon to also be a distance program. Uh, under Martin Smith, the previous coach, who was a, technically a very good coach, um, distances had not been as emphasized as Nike liked. Um, I actually think Alberto Salazar was a pretty key guy in this too. Um, and I think um, uh, Phil and Alberto engineered um, 
Martin Smith's dismissal. Uh, they found a good place for him to land at Oklahoma and, and sort of got him out of the way. Uh, and then went out and tried to find somebody they thought could do all these things, bring back the distances, uh, bring back the, the track program at Oregon in a way that energized the home crowd and host big meets. And they targeted Lanana. I think Lanana was very happy where he was. He was an administrator at Oberlin. He was tired of, at that point in his life, of the day-to-day grind of coaching. He wanted to get into administration. And so he'd, he'd found a, a good landing spot, and they went out and got him. I, I remember it was clear they were targeting from the him from the start, and um, they refused to say this. And so I uh, went out and deliberately tried to find other track coaches that met those list of qualifications, which had clearly been tailored just for Lanana. And I remember uh, if you if you read the the letter of the qualifications, uh, Brooks Johnson fit that those qualifications. So I started throwing out names of of other people uh, like Brooks Johnson who would fit those qualifications, just to force them to to deal with that. And, and, and on top of that, Oregon has a a law uh, here uh, that requires uh, college head coaches college head coaching searches to at least interview one minority candidate. So they had to interview somebody like Brooks Johnson. So I, maybe I, maybe I helped them by, by locating him and, and saying he met the criteria. Um, but it was clear they were going to hire Lenana from the start. And it's, it's also clear in retrospect, he was the right guy because he had the, the vision um, uh, the, to, to provide what Nike wanted. Now uh, it's expensive what he did and Nike was putting up the money uh, still is putting up the money, or, or if not Nike, uh, Phil Knight from from his personal funds, and that, and that's an important distinction. Sometimes I think people conflate the two. Uh, Knight's been retired from day to day running of Nike for a while now, and he has an immense personal fortune which he uses as he sees fit. And he loves track and field, and he loves Hayward Field, so he chooses to spend his money there. But um, <clears throat> uh, what? Vin did took money and took resources, uh, and I think sometimes he might have overpromised uh, what he could deliver in in a return. And I, I think um, that might have been most the case with the 2016 World Indoor Championships, which um, uh, Lenana landed for Portland at the uh, Oregon Convention Center. You guys were there, um, and I, I thought they pulled it off really well. But I wasn't the guy counting the bottom line. And I think, uh, those cost a, the, the, those world championships cost a lot of money. And in the end, I think they were left with a big shortfall, um, uh, much bigger than they had expected. And there's only one person that could make up for that. And that was, uh, uh, Phil Knight. And I, I think he did. I mean, they, they paid their bills and all that, but I think, uh, that's when there maybe was a beginning of a little bit of a, uh, a less enthusiastic support in, in Beaverton for Vin Lanana. So um, I, I think uh, going forward, uh, Phil Knight, as is evidenced by the fact he, he's built this palace of a, a track stadium, and Eugene still wants to invest in track, but I also think he wants somebody who's maybe going to be more realistic about what um, what something's going to cost and, and what the return will be. Yeah, that's interesting because – I think some of the numbers, yeah, didn't line up like they thought they would, but then still needed to get the outdoor world at that point, right? So they still kind of probably had to work together, and they were still building this amazing new Hayward Field. So have you seen the new Hayward Field? 
how excited should we be? I'm under the assumption there will be track meets next year. I guess even if there aren't fans, the media will be there, but hopefully fans as well. But like, what can we look forward to, assuming you've seen it? I'm not seeing the inside, only the outside. To my knowledge, the only people who have seen the inside are the uh, University of Oregon track athletes, coaches, uh, support people within the track program, and selected uh, VIP alumni. I don't think anybody else has. If, if anybody else has, I don't know about it. Wow. I'm looking forward to going. I hope, you know, pre-classic or Olympic trials. I guess NCAAs there next year as well. It's going to be... Supposed to be. Now, big question. I, what do you guys think? I, I'm very suspicious that these meets are going to come off. I... I I'm kind of optimistic. I think it's going to happen. And I don't think they, there might not be fans, but I think the Olympics are going to happen because there is a lot of money involved there. And I think the, therefore the Olympic trials, I mean, the U S I think the U S will probably try to send a team. I think they'll, they, if you're going to send a team, they got to pick it. So I think they'll have a trials. We might not have fans there. NCAAs I think is going to happen because We've got a cross-country schedule, a cross-country championship on the schedule. We've got an indoor championships on the schedule. I think maybe you see indoors get canceled, but I think outdoors, it's a little bit more easy to distance. I think that'll happen. Pre-classic, I don't, I don't know about that. It's, I guess it's not going to be that much. It's like end of May, and then the trials are middle of June. So if they have the trials, they'll probably have pre in some form. I do, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. We might not have fans, but I do think we'll have a track season next year. Because we had it in Europe, and assuming the coronavirus, I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like three weeks from now, let alone like, you know, six months from now, but assuming the U S can get it under control a little bit, I think they can stage meets in the same way that we had meets in Europe this summer. Yeah, maybe. Um, I know the first time I took coronavirus seriously for, for what it could do to the, um, the sports seasons in America was, uh, when the last uh, March, when the, I believe the teams were already in Albuquerque for the NCAA Indoor Championships. Um, there were uh, conference basketball tournaments being played, and the Ivy League pulled the plug. It was the Ivy League, because uh, I was following the track thing closer maybe than the basketball, but um, uh, everybody at Oregon and the or within the Oregon team, in fact, I had just done a feature on one of the Oregon athletes. They thought they were going to compete. They went there to compete, and even the two days before the meet thought they were going to compete. It was when the Ivy league pulled out that, that, that world changed. And didn't the Ivy league just cancel the winter sports? They did. And yeah, I think, well, I, that's why I'm told I've been doing this feature this week about the NCAA indoor meet and the NCAA cross country championships, the schedule for the same weekend. Are, are they going to happen? And I've talked to the Arkansas coaches, Chris Buckner and Lance Harder. They're very much of the opinion we are going to have an SEC championships at the very minimum. And they're also hosting NCAAs. They're like, we're going to host it. it we're, plan we're moving forward. It's going to happen. But if you get conferences saying we're going to cancel indoor sports, and I think the Ivy League will not be the first, sorry, will not be the last to make that announcement. At some point, you will have so many conferences have canceled that the, meets, the NCAA indoors is going to be canceled. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get to that point. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to, play college football now, right? And it's just been a chaotic mess. I mean, the Pac-12 was the one that was supposedly had done it right. They they waited till the very end. They got all their testing protocols lined up. They were going to test every day. It was it was going to be safe. They haven't they couldn't get through the first week. And I you know, if, if there's not a vaccine, 
And if that vaccine is not widely available, I don't know how you pull any of this stuff off. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, and the Ivy League angle is interesting because, like you said, they were the first to cancel. They canceled their conference basketball tournament first. And I was livid. I actually wrote the Yale assistant athletic director only because I couldn't find the athletic director's email. And it's like, this is ridiculous. We're going to have an NCAA tournament next week. You guys, look, your Ivy Leagues, a lot of Ivy Leaguers think they're very smart. I'm like, if you guys know something more, I'm like, this isn't consistent. But if you know something more and we need to cancel everything, you need to get that out there. So I think they were ahead of the game. So, so it was your fault, right? Because you wrote that, then Ivy League got it all out there. Oh, I didn't think about that. I, I, I'm responsible for everything being canceled. So I think they were right there. But actually, I think for the fall sports, they were actually wrong because they canceled all fall sports. And it looks like now as we're getting later in the fall, maybe not. But like, I would say, oh, we've had football up until now. It's the schools that are starting right now. If you're starting football right now, it's, we're having more issues now, right? Like... The cross-country season could pretty much almost be done right now. You could have had whatever, soccer. Most of the seasons would pretty much be done by November. They don't go that late in the season. So they blew the good window, and then they're like, oh, no, we're going to have indoor sports? And all along, I'm like, we're going to have indoor sports with the flu and COVID? Good luck on that one. So who knows what's going to happen indoors. But like John, I'm pretty confident we'll have an Olympic trials. I'm pretty confident we'll have an Olympics. The fans and that stuff, I have no idea. Indoor track, no idea. Um... I, I'm I'm generally very optimistic about this stuff, but it like what that means <laughs> during COVID is constantly shifting. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Ken, it's been a pleasure recapping your career. You know, thanks uh, for making time for us today, and you know, I'm glad to hear that you're hopefully going to be continuing in some respect. You know, freelancing with the Oregonian. I think it would be great to have. You need to be at the Olympic trials. And the world championships in Eugene. I mean, it wouldn't be the same without Ken Go there. So I appreciate that. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you there. Uh, but appreciate the time today. And I've stopped reading Let's Run, so I'm, I'm still going to be a fan. Oh, I thought you said you, you stopped reading. Yeah, wait, no, don't say you stopped. I, I, you no, didn't. no, I'm not. I have not stopped. Okay. Okay, good. I, I, I'm refusing to commit to read the message boards, though. I, but I am going to read your front page. Retirement, like, like what's on tap? I think beforehand, before the show, you said you just got back from the coast, right? But like, yeah, it was beautiful. What are you doing a week from today? I mean, or do you figure it out every day? I subscribe to the New York Times, um, and one of the great pleasures is being able to sit and read it without thinking, "God, I, I need to get going on work." And now I don't have that problem. I I read the whole thing today. It was awesome. You know, before I would I'd skim here, skim there, uh, but there'd be a bunch of stuff that I couldn't get to. Uh, maybe they'll maybe I'll get tired of that after a while, but not so far. That's great. More time to read the New York Times and more time to read Let's Run.com. You heard it here. That's right. That's great.